Welcome to Camera Shake Podcast, episode 50. But before we get into it today, let me just tell you about our Camera Shake community. All you've got to do is go to camerashakepodcast.com, hit the join the community button and join our community. You'll get access to behind the scenes footage and we'll very occasionally send you a nice little newsletter that will let you know whatever is happening in the world of the Camera Shake Podcast. But that being said, please welcome today's special guest. I'm really happy to have him on the show. Today we're with Mr. Frank Dohoff, creative portrait photographer, educator, author, and the undisputed fountain of knowledge that is Frank Dohoff. Frank, how are you? I'm fine. Thank you so very much for that introduction. You made me blush. <laughs> <Cool>. <laughs> I hope people can see that on Zoom. Fountain of youth, but no. <laughs> ah, I can redo that intro. The Fountain of Youth. <laughs> I've settled for that one too. <laughs> cool. Right, Frank, how are you? You're in Holland at the moment. Yes, I'm in the Netherlands, correct. Cool. Do you, are you guys currently, are you in full lockdown at the moment or what's happening over there? Actually, we've never been in full lockdown. There's a lot of people complaining about freedom being taken away and everything. And I'm more on the side of there's a virus going around and we have to take care of our healthcare. And that's the whole reason that we do this. And that's a good reason. And we were never in really lockdown. So we have a lot of freedoms. It's just like the stores are closed or at this point you can go to a store, but only after you make an appointment. So it's not like we can't go on the street. We can still walk the dogs and we can go out for biking or mountain biking. We, we can go wherever we want. It's just like the government says, please keep your travel as low as possible. And I think that's the main problem that it still goes on. Uh, I, th I think a lot of people are taking this a little bit too too relaxed. Let me put it this way. I'm not yeah. going to go like we're all going to die or whatever. And I'm not going to say there's nothing going on. It's a pandemic. It's really bad. And we have to take care of our healthcare and our elders, of course. And if we can do that by taking a little bit of distance. And I always tell people better six feet apart and six feet under, right? So just do it like that. And the whole lockdown, it's... For us, it's really frustrating because I'm a creative person and I found out that especially the first three months, I was going like a, a hamster in a little wheel. I have to work, I have to work, I have to create, I have to create. And then the wheel spin backwards. I can't create, I can't do anything because we, we can't make any appointments. And at one point to keep your sanity, what I started doing is I have these little action figures and I just took out my phone. I have the Sony Xperia phone, which has a really nice interface for camera. So you can do everything manually. And, and I just gave myself the challenge, like as long as there's a lockdown or semi-lockdown, we call it intelligent lockdown, I'm just going to limit myself to my smartphone and loom cubes and non-light tubes. And I'm just going to shoot my action figures. And just before the lockdown and before the whole pandemic started, I was actually transforming everything from a very fast laptop to an iPad Pro to see how far can you push mobile technology at the moment? Can I do my whole workflow on an iPad Pro? Now, a year ago, I started out and because you are very limited in time, what you do is you start going like quick, you know, you open up Photoshop, you go like, oh, no, it's not there. Just forget about it. Go back to the laptop. Then you have an hour free, you start up Photoshop on the iPad and you go like, oh, I can't find it, forget about it. And now because you are in a period where you can literally just slow down, take a breath, you can't work, you can't do anything except watch Netflix. So why not pick up your iPad and just go through Photoshop and go like, okay, so I can't do it this way, can I do it another way? And I found out that after about two months really struggling with Photoshop on the iPad, 
you can do so incredibly much. And then Lightroom came with the update where you can literally use your texture and your clarity and dehaze filter in local adjustments. And so I started to think of a way to retouch skin because that was the only thing that frustrated me. Everything that I do with travel photography or product photography, I can do on a mobile workflow. That's no problem at all. But as soon as you start editing skin, that's where everything falls down because that's so incredibly vital for model photography. And you don't have to make a Barbie doll out of somebody, but you have to make sure that it looks nice, right? Like when you shoot film, there's always a little bit of a curvature in your film. So the skin never looks pin sharp. And when you shoot digital, everything is very, very flat. So the skin just looks like, let me be honest, the skin just looks terrible on digital. So what you need to do is just smoothen out that skin just a little bit. And by using texture and your clarity slider in Lightroom Mobile, you can now by local adjustments do that very well. So I spend most of my time doing that. And then at the moment when I was going like, okay, now I know what I can do with my mobile workflow. I actually started doing more and more with compositing. So we are actually now taking some images of action figures and just placing them in a the background. The weird thing is when you see those images, they absolutely suck because I can't composite for the heck of life. I, I can't do it. <laughs> but when I look at my first image and the image I do now, there's a huge difference because I'm starting to learn that you have to create atmosphere, that you have to glue everything together with color. So I think this year, has been very important for me personally to get a lot more experience with different lighting setups, but most of all with techniques like mobile workflow. So although there's a pandemic going around, I, I, I can't say that I lost a year. I didn't teach for a year. I didn't do any events, but we did record two instructional videos. And yeah, I think that whole mobile workflow is just absolutely amazing. So that's how I managed to go through the pandemic, just do different things and keep motivated. Well, I think that's an, well, it's an important point, really, because, you know, you can either look at something like this pandemic and, and this last year that we've had of, of pretty much being locked. I mean, over here in the UK, we've been pretty much locked down, I would say, 70, 80 percent of the time. But yeah. This is our third lockdown right now. And you can either think like, oh, you know, it's a terrible thing and we get all depressed about it. Or you can think like, well, OK, here I have a chance to step back, you know, increase my skill set, learn something new, you know, yeah. do something maybe different. And, uh, and that way you'll make the best out of a bad situation, I guess. And I'm totally honest with you guys, and you don't have to cut this out. L let's be totally honest. When you look at your normal life, I'm a very, very happy person. I, I do work a lot. And people often ask like, hey, how many, how many hours a week do you work? And we never calculated it. At one point I calculated, I said around 70 to 80. And he was going up to me, he said, that's impossible. You can't work 80 hours a week. I said, okay, let me put it this way. I said, what is your hobby? And he said, oh man, I just love, I don't know what he did. Let, let's say he loved to play with trains. I love to play with trains. I said, okay, now imagine this. We are in lockdown. How much time do you spend on your trains? He said, oh dude, literally, I now get out. My job is ended. So I now get out of bed. I go up to the attic. I start playing with my trains. And I built this whole world around it. He said, I go down for lunch. I go up again. I said, okay, and till what time at night? He said, well, I watch a movie with my wife and then I go back to the trains. He said, okay, now calculate all those hours you play with your trains. How many hours is that a week? He said, probably 80, 90, 100. I said, okay, now imagine this. Your trains is my photography. It's not that I go to the studio at nine o'clock in the morning and go like, oh, almost five o'clock, let's go home. No, I just love what I do. 
So that means that when I have an appointment in the studio, I will do my photo shoots or my workshops. But as soon as it's done, I can't wait to retouch the images. And at that point, you start to realize you're in a certain role. And the thing that you don't notice, and this is very important, and, and I got this when I was very young, you are very prone to a burnout. And I got this when I was mid-20s. We ran a computer company, and I had the same motivation, like, okay, go on, go on, go on. There's no time for rest. Go on. And I had no problems at all until I got a holiday. It was only three days. After those three days, I found out that I had a burnout because I couldn't do anything anymore. And I just found out how incredibly tired I was. Now, photography is great and it's very creative, but traveling, doing trade shows and trade shows are killing. Trust me, in the months, March and April, we do normally like five trade shows. All those trade shows are three or four days. And those days are literally from eight o'clock in the morning till way late at night, including traveling, jet lags. And by the time that the pandemic hit, it was March. And I found out that over the years, every time when March approaches, I was in top condition. I started mountain biking very early. I started doing my exercises very intense before, the, uh, before all the events. So I came there with big stamina and I was going for it. But still, you find out that over the years, you, you go back a little bit, right? You're getting older and you think it's because you're getting older, but it's actually not. It's all the stress that builds up over all those years. And what I found out in the pandemic was I, I went from, let's say, 12 hours a day, full working and having fun, right? It's not working. It's fun. But you have that level. And then I started going to absolute zero. There was like in March, there was like there were three big events. And all the events were canceled. So you go like, okay, we have everything prepared. We don't have photo shoots. We don't have workshops. Because at first it was only the events that were canceled. So I was still teaching workshops. And I was just going like, you went from this to vroom. And then you find out how tired you are. And actually that the first two months, you really need to get back to that level. And now I'm at the level that I was 10 years ago. And that's something that triggered something in my mind. Like, hey, if I can now be back at the level that I was 10 years ago with being spontaneous, feeling, feeling happy, feeling totally, I don't know how to explain it, but you don't feel 49 at the moment. You feel 39 because you get so yeah. much rest. I think this is something that a lot of people can take out of the pandemic. Like what I want to do now is normally we work seven days a week and on Sunday we do a little bit less. I'm going back to five days a week. I want my weekends back and I don't want it on Saturday and Sunday. I'm probably going to take a Wednesday off and then a Friday and then we'll just alternate it. And I, I think because you have more time for yourself and for your own development, I found out that during the pandemic, actually my lighting became better. I have a lot more ideas for lighting setups and building sets because normally you don't have the time for that. And that's the whole thing. You don't have time for anything that's fun or fun that's different from what you already do. You plan your whole agenda has to be full because if there's an empty day, there's no income and there is nothing to do. What can you do? Watch Netflix. Well, during the pandemic, I found out that watching Netflix isn't a bad thing because it's really good for your mind. You can really settle down and just take a breather. Yeah. I think one of the things that, that we did, and I think many people did at the beginning of the first lockdown, like back in March, April last year, was we did the Marvel Marathon. Yeah. Where uh, on Disney Plus, you have all the Marvel movies and you watch them in like chronological order. And uh and, you know, it is, it's, like, it's something like 27 movies. And when you think about it, like previously, how long would it would have 
taken me to watch 27 movies, a, a whole year or whatever. Yeah. We did it in under a week. <laughs> and it wasn't a bad thing. You know, it was great. It was actually just, it was, first of all, it was a way to kind of take our minds off, off of what was going on and all, because at the, at the time, I think at the beginning, you know, there was a lot more fear involved because nobody oh, yeah, knew. We were terrified. Was, yeah, it was terrifying. You know, people in the, like people will come at you in the, in the supermarket, they'd be like 10 meters away at the other end of the aisle. And you could, you know, all masked up and you could see the fear in their eyes just because there was another human being like 10 meters away. And of course, you know, now it's different because we've gotten used to the situation and everything. Yeah. But but I found it at the time, just taking my mind off of things uh, really did help to kind of chill me out quite a bit. To be honest, and this is maybe weird, and I'm, I'm a guy that will never do anything political because I, I think that... I'm not politically engaged for the very simple reason I, I don't care because nothing will ever change. It's like <laughs> exactly. done. But I, I'm more terrified now than I was at the beginning, but not for the virus. I think we are left with a society that's so broken that it will never heal again. And that's I, I, the, the main thing is, you know, when we started the pandemic, we were all one. We wanted to protect our healthcare system. So we all... Although we couldn't touch each other, we all put our hands together and we went into lockdown. We helped other people and it was actually great, right? There was this whole community, people coming together. We have to beat this virus. And then you got this whole part of where people started to demonstrate, where people started to literally, when we got the curfew, in the Netherlands, and we never ever saw that in the Netherlands since World War II. We had people throwing Molotov cocktails at the police, thousands of people just roaming the streets and just literally going out for coffee with iron pipes and uh, uh, and fight dogs to fight the police. And there was one friend of mine actually works with the police and he says, you know the thing, when you have a hooligan against you, there's this rule, you don't attack the horse, and you don't attack our dogs. So they attack the police, but they stay away from the horses. They stay away from the dogs. He said, these people are beasts. They literally attack the dogs. They literally hit the horses. He said, this is a totally different breed of protesters. And now when you look at online, there's this whole part that I, I divide it into three. I'm in the middle, right? I think some of the curfews are totally out of whack, like opening the schools. There's an alternative for schools. You can do it online. Open up the stores because there's no alternative for the stores. And if you have to take that risk, I think grown-ups will take that distance a little bit more serious than the kids, right? So why open up the schools? Open up the stores, leave the schools closed. So I don't agree with everything they do. I do agree that there's something that has to be done because we have to control this virus. Then you have the part that's afraid for everything. So that will stay in their house, ward everything up and don't go outside because everybody can kill you. Okay. And you have to part and that's the most dangerous part that goes there. There is no virus. It's only in the Netherlands. And you go like, please look at the news. It's everywhere in the world. No, the Netherlands. And that's the part where I'm so afraid of because I literally have two models now that I will never ever work with again. Not because I don't like them. Before the pandemic, we were great friends and we had a lot of fun with each other. But because what I post online, it's the reason for me to never, ever invite him in the studio again. And if that happens to me, I'm a big teddy bear. I will never have problems with anybody. I'm, I'm a human person. I, I love friendships and I will never do anything to hurt somebody. So 
finding myself in the position where I tell people like, I will never invite that girl again in the studio, literally terrified the hell out of me because I never expected that I would do something like that. And I think that will be the scar that the COVID will actually leave in our community that's way bigger than the scar that it leaves by economics or death. It's just people are so opposite to each other. I never saw that before in a non-war time. It's there's been there's been a lot of polarization. I think that's that's been going on there. That's and the I word. agree. I was like, and it, polarization, and and it's especially on social media. That's when that's when it comes out because you know, uh, it's just like you. I don't. I never ever post any political posts on on Facebook because it's not relevant. It's not relevant, to, you know, to me. I mean, I'm not I'm not that much into politics at all, and I have of course everybody's got opinions or whatever, but I don't necessarily feel that it's. It's not important to me to to sprout up my opinions online, but of course, there are people in your Facebook feed or whatever who do nothing but. And I found the same thing. It's like you know, there's some some people who I had to kind of let go, and that's of course the beauty of this is like a discussion I have with my wife all the time. She complains about those people, like you know, clogging up her Facebook profile. And I was like, unfriend them, get rid of them. You don't have to look at that stuff. You don't want to. You know, you're never going to convince those people you know, to change their mind. No, it's like, that, you know, but if you want to free yourself of all that negativity, just get rid of it. You know, that's that, the, that, that's they're, the, they're the people who don't really understand what's going on out there. So they have to force and push that agenda, that opinion out, the, out there because that's what they know. And they don't have the full idea, the full picture. And that's, yeah. that, that's why, you know, I, lots of people get unfollowed on my feed and all of that kind of stuff because <laughs> I'm not interested in the things that they have to say about that. You know, I'm not, don't get me wrong, I will always listen to anyone's opinion about anything. I, I may not agree with it, but I'll listen to it. Mm-hmm. But I also don't want to be in a position where every time I turn my phone on, I have to hear it and read it. Yeah. And that's just not, it, it makes me feel, just thinks, oh God, I'm done like, with this. This is just, and, I've had enough. It- I tried to have a conversation with one of those guys and I literally told him like, okay, but what is your problem? He said, we are shutting down a complete country only for a flu virus. And I said, (laughs) we're not shutting it down for a flu virus, Mm. dude, literally. And this was like two months ago. Mm. I said, we're not shutting it down for a flu virus. We're shutting it down because a virus is giving a lot of pressure on our healthcare system. And I found out and we broke her leg. Now, normally it's when you break your leg and she didn't go skating because that was the weird thing. The day before she broke her leg, I actually talked to Anna Week and everybody in the Netherlands was going skating. And skating is very dangerous. You can break your legs, you can break your arms. If you fall on the ice, there's no bounce back. It's harder than concrete. So I actually said as a joke, that was really a joke, guys. So don't flame me for this. I said, you know what? Actually, when you break your leg or your arm skating, they should put you on a waiting list of two weeks for getting healthcare <laughs> because you are clogging down the system even more. Just stay home. Stay home. It's the same thing. I don't mountain bike at the moment for one very simple reason. If I fall down, where do I go? Yeah. And yeah. Anna Week actually walked the dog and she slipped on a very small piece of ice and she broke her leg in two places. She went to the hospital. Now imagine this, you're all masked up in the hospital. I had to leave my wife because they said, you can't come in here because of COVID. She was terrified. So I just went with them. I said, we've been in quarantine voluntarily. I want to go with my wife. So they discussed it. Okay, you can go. So that's already one part. And then you look at the surgeon. He goes like, yeah, we really have to operate on you next week. 
And I was going like, okay, next week. He said, and that's fast. And he turned around his computer and he showed over 80 surgeries he had to do in one week. I said, how many do you do normally? He said, around one third. He said, but because of COVID, he said, all our uh, physicians are actually busy. He said, so we can't do regular healthcare at the moment. And as long as you don't get that picture in your mind, you don't know what the heck's going on and why we have those lockdowns. And some people say, just open everything up and nature will find out itself. Trust me, if you open up for one month, nature will pretty much figure it out. Because if you break your thumb, the rest of the of your life, you will not be able to use your thumb because there's no healthcare. Yeah, exactly. And they don't understand that we don't shut down for the virus. We shut down for our healthcare. And I think that's the part of where you literally start to see that people don't read about it, they don't think about it, and they just throw out insane things like 5G stuff and (laughs) people drinking babies or whatever. It's it's insane. And in one year, I've seen more than... I I said to Anna Week, (laughs) don't laugh about this, but I said to Anna Week, I love horror, science fiction, and uh, disaster movies. I just love those. If this was a movie, I would literally shut it down after 20 minutes because it was totally unbelievable. Pandemic going around and people are going in an airplane going on holiday. At that point, I would literally just stop the movie and go like, yeah, sure. But like if if like three years ago, anybody told you like, you know, uh, there's going to be a global pandemic, you know, it's going to be national lockdowns. It's going to be so and so many people who are going to die. You know, you would have thought, well, that's that's a really crappy B movie, and plus, that's never going to happen in the real world. I actually thought it would happen. Yeah, it's it's just like you know, it's it's incredible. I actually expected it to happen after you had to, uh, in the Netherlands. We had Q courts a few years ago, and we have a lot of scares, of course, with bird flu and whatnot more. And those were all contained. And I was just waiting for you have climate change, right? And I'm, I'm not a pessimistic person. I'm very optimistic. I always see the positive stuff. But when you look at the viruses that are going around now, you know what a virus is, right? It's dead material. It's a little bit of uh, RNA or whatever it is in a shell. That's it. Now, imagine this. Everything that's going around now is all based on the same kind of virus. So it's it's recognizable. Now, you know, we have climate change, right? And everything is melting. What do you think about all the stuff that's underneath the ice that's been there for millions of years? It's still alive. It can still get in our food supply. And I think that's a a risk that we don't even think about at the moment. We only think about rising our level of water. We think about getting too hot or too cold because you have this yo-yo effect at the moment, which is literally because of your climate change. But think about all the stuff, literally all the shit that's underneath the ice, like anthrax, like every virus that's ever been in the world, it's somewhere hidden there. And that's something that really terrifies me. On the other hand, you know what? You only live once and probably it will take decades before something like that happens. But with everything going on in the world, a pandemic, it wasn't really a surprise. I just hoped it would never happen. Look at Bill Gates. He said it three or four years ago already. I think no matter what happens, when we're out of this in six months, a year, when we're 18 months, when we're starting to get properly back to, you know, quote unquote normal, we'll, um, the world will be a different, a bit of a different place, right? Uh, for better or for worse in certain circumstances. I hope it's for better. But I just want to go go back to something you were saying there, because I, I don't want to gloss over it, because it's, 
it's really important what you were talking about at the start there. And that is that you've used lockdown not to wallow, not to, you know, get angry or upset, but you've used it as a, a platform almost to you know, better yourself with your work that you're doing on mobile and best, not just better yourself in, in, in yourself, but better your techniques and things like that, that you can take forward once we are out of this and you'll come out of, you actually come out of lockdown a better photographer for it. And that's really, really important that you need to do something over the, this, this period, not only to just keep yourself engaged and creative, but to feel like you've accomplished something during this time. Because otherwise, and I didn't do this at the start, you, you your mind starts circling. And I think for improving yourself over pandemic, you, you know, I, I've improved my photography, but I also started playing guitar more and mountain biking more. Like in the past, I only mountain biked on the road. And I actually started doing parkours in the summer last year, but doing it very carefully because, again, I don't want to fall down now. But it's all like practicing, like very simple parkours. So I always wanted to do that, but never had the time. And you have to learn that technique, of course. So you can do it next to your photography, just progress into different areas. And especially playing guitar has been a huge influence for me over the pandemic because you have to spend a lot of time. And I played guitar when I was younger. Then I stopped for 17 years and picked it up again. So the technique is gone. But in my mind, there's still everything is there. So yeah. during the pandemic, man, I played a lot. I see, I see a band coming up, like between Nick, myself, you and Adam Loner as a guitarist too. <laughs> Free guitarist, so we are in Maiden. <laughs> oh, I play everything, everything what you want from blues to uh, pop or whatever. I just love, and we even made a group on Facebook. If you email me, I can add you to that group where we can just throw in ideas. And just work on each other's versions. Because nowadays you have a Reaper, for example. It's a free DAW. Everybody can install it on their computer, import program and, or sorry, import the song. And for example, take out the drums and put in new drums. The weird thing is, and I found that out really weird, is that we have a lot of people that normally are very creative. So I immediately emailed those guys because I know they're very active with music, right? So I emailed those guys and I said, okay, now that we have the pandemic, we have more time for music, let's work on some songs. And you know, the weird part is some people are very active during the lockdown and some people where I thought of, they, they would jump on the idea to create songs. They are always like, yeah, next week, now next week, I will do it next week. And then you talk to them and I go like, I can't find any inspiration. I'm just sitting at home on the couch. So I, I think that's that mindset that you have to change, which we talked about in the, in the past. If you see this as a really bad thing, it will hurt you creatively. I just see it as yeah. a sabbatical. I have a yeah. one or two years sabbatical. And of course, I, I think it sucks. I love teaching. But on the other hand, if I can't teach, I, I can mope around it. Or I can just say, oh, man, I can't teach. I have time for other stuff. Of course, it's a lie because I love teaching. On the other hand, is it really a lie? Because normally I don't have time for that mobile workflow. I don't have time for figuring out how my phone works or whatever. And now I have plenty of time. So yeah. one of our one of our previous guests, um, he said that creativity is a muscle that you need to exercise. Every day. And, yes. and if you don't, it does become when you do start again, it's that much harder. And yeah. it takes time to rebuild what you have. You know, you do something creative you suddenly feel more creative to do something else. And it just continues from there. 
You know what also works? And this is maybe something for your viewers, which can be really interesting. I found out that I live and breathe photography and guitars. I just love guitars and photography. I, it's my whole life, right? And still during the lockdown, I found out that when I go to my studio, the, the guitar studio in the back of our home, so we're now broadcasting from, the, from our home, not the studio. And I still found out that I sit down, I grab a guitar, I turn on the amp, and I just go like, <laughs> let's watch another episode of The Walking Dead and just let's go home because <laughs> I don't feel like playing. And when I have my normal rhythm, so there's no pandemic, as soon as I pick up a guitar, and week really has to drag me out of this part of the house because I won't lay it down. I just want to keep playing. One of the tricks that I taught myself to do, and this is something that really helps, is if I feel like, hey, I really want to record something, but I don't feel like it. You know that feeling, right? Your, your mind says you have to record something, but your body tells you no. That's one part of being in a lockdown. It just screws over your mind. What I do now is I, I treat myself like a little kid with a lollipop. I don't give it to myself. I really have to earn it. So what I do is I will go onto YouTube and I watch videos about photography or guitars. And at that point, you know the feeling you go like, oh, I want to pick up a guitar. And I tell myself, no, not yet. Then I wait another day and I watch more movies about guitars. And I start going like, man, I really want to pick up that guitar. No, not yet. And then I watch more movies. And then I found out at one point you're starting to burst open with, man, I want to take a camera. I want to take a picture. Man, I want to play a song. And then you go to your guitars. And the weird thing is, as soon as you pick up your guitar, like 50% of that energy level is immediately dropped like, oh, yeah, I have to do something. But because you're so bursting with energy, you are doing it. And you find out, and this is something that really helps out, you find out that as soon as you start doing it, so as soon as you start making a picture, or as soon as you start playing guitar, after the first five minutes, man, you're gone. You are doing it. You are blasting it away. But because we have so much free time and we're out of that rush, we're not getting used to that rush again. So normally you are on a highway and you just keep going. And now you are in the standstill and you have to go on a highway. And that's something sometimes really difficult, especially with photography. Man, I have to take nature shots now. I never <laughs> yeah. did. I always took model photography. So what do I do? I love mountain biking. I find some really cool parkours. I take my phone and I challenge myself. Okay, I have to ride this parkour, but I have to come home with at least five great shots. I don't publish them online, but I do have five shots. I do open them up and there we go. Lightroom Mobile. I retouch everything in Lightroom Mobile, and that way you keep your skill going. And as mm -hmm. soon, trust me, as soon as I have a model in front of my camera, I go totally crazy because I'm so bursting with that energy to do that model again that you get the most creative shots, even with natural light. I, we recently did one with a model with natural light when there was snow uh, near Schokland, and she had a ballet uh, suit on and a, uh, a pole uh, for pole dancing. I didn't bring any strobes because we were not allowed to work with more than two people on set. So we only had the model, her assistant and me, and it was all natural light. Now, normally when I do a shoot like that, I come home and I go like, and then we will ask me like, hey, did you like it? Oh, yeah, it was cool. And I will retouch the images and we'll go like, yeah, they're nice. Now I came home with the images and then we was going like, how did it go? Like, oh, this was awesome. This was so, and I went totally <laughs> berserk and I yeah. wanted to retouch the images and I want to try out new stuff. So sometimes it's, 
I think really good to take sabbatical and just let that tension build because then as soon as you start shooting, you literally explode with ideas. But the thing that's vital, I think, is in between watch those YouTube videos, watch those podcasts about photography, because if you don't do it, you won't have that level of energy building up that you want to do something. I hope that makes sense for you guys. Really, what? really does. And, you know, the other thing that you said uh, earlier was um, that you your job is something that you love, right? Oh, yeah. It is, you know, it is... You, which is why you can do so many hours if you if you want to every day every week with just just continued enthusiasm and you know if you imagine those people who don't do a job at the moment which is something that they are they really love you know they might work in corporate they might work you know in an office somewhere something like that imagine how difficult it is then to get back going doing something like something like that in an office environment hmm. you know i i in a previous life i i worked in in corporate for for, for Amazon for many, 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 many years. And, you know, my very early thirties, I took a, funny enough, a three month sabbatical and I was hoping that, that I would come back refreshed. You, you know what happened? I came back even more disinterested and wanting to work in that environment anymore. Mm. Nothing wrong with the role, nothing wrong with the company just wasn't for me anymore. So therefore within weeks, I just handed in my notice. And I went self-employed. I do audio, video, photo, and I teach to kind of, you know, all the things that I love to do. And do I earn as much money? No, no, I don't. Not even close. But I'm, I'm, I, was, I was, before lockdown, I was a happier person, mm. much happier. And that's more important to me these days. The thing is, you only live once as, as far as we know, although with the universe, you never know, but hey, Let's say what we know is that you only live once and that approximately maybe 70, 80% of your life you are engaged with work. So if you don't like what you do, you're wasting at least 60% of your life away because you don't yeah. like what you're doing. And okay, you have money on the bank. Then you have a big house, but you're never home because you're always working. You have a big car, but you're never in the car because you're always working. As soon as you stop working, you lose your house, you lose your car. You have a burnout. You're not nice to your wife because you aren't in a shitty job. Just take a little bit of a job, of, of a, a pay cut. And now you do something that you really love. And in the Absolutely. end, passion will always translate. Like... I, I know guys that can't shoot for the heck of it. They really make really bad work, but they are so enthusiastic and the client just loves them. And I know people that can take great images, but they don't portray that passion that they have and they don't have any clients. And for us, it was like, I love photography, but I love teaching even more. So at one point I just made the decision, do I want to be a photographer for a magazine? And that really bumped me out. You know why? You get paid for a magazine spread. <clears throat> it's not a lot of money, but you get paid for it, right? And then you get this whole list. So the model has to be there. The model has to wear this. The model has to look that way. You have to light it that way. And this is go like, I'm not a freaking copying machine. Can I please do my own stuff? No, it doesn't fit the profile of the story. Okay, so you go to a hotel room, you shoot some images in fashion, different clothing. You have this art director next to you. No, Frank, it has to be this way. Yeah, but I love a little bit of motion. No, Frank, it has to be a still image and she has to look the right way. Yeah, but I like the hair on the left. No, because the text is on that side. Okay, you're right. Just take the shots. And then you get 250 euros after you paid everybody. It's a nice pay, 
but it's so so incredibly limiting. And I found out that at one point I really got bumped out with photography. And a lot of guys show, saw my work, which I did as free work. And they were going like, hey, do you teach workshops? I was going like, no, I don't teach workshops. Why not? Said, you need to be a master for that, right? And no, no, we just love what you do. So at one point I, I said, okay, I will do one workshop. So I, I asked the model. I worked with a lot, Corinne at that moment. And I said, do you want to do a workshop with me for 25 people? And she was going like, yeah, sure. After that workshop, I kid you not, it was like the switch was turned over. It was like, this is so awesome. And it sounds weird, but it's, it's really the truth. Now, fast forward a few years. I love shooting on weird locations. Like, for example, an airplane museum. Isn't it awesome to shoot with airplanes like a, a big 747 in the cockpit with a model uh, all in steampunk clothing and you can light it and you can use whatever you want in an airplane? How much do you think that something like that will cost you? First, you have to get permission. That will take you about one or two weeks if you're lucky. Then you have to rent out the entire space. Then you have to find a model. Then you have to pay a lot of money for everybody that's there. So in the end, you're talking about maybe 2,000 euros for one or two shots. In my case, I just put a call online. I said, hey, I'm going to do a workshop at an airplane museum. Who wants to come? Tickets are 250 euros. I only need six people and everything is paid for. I get the shots that I want. I can teach a lot of information to the guy. So normally I would do the shot in like, let's say, four hours. We now stretch it up to eight hours so I can also teach. And I come home with exactly the shots that I want. And I teach. And in the end, I also save money. So I'm like, this is a dream job because now I'm not forced by my art director to do what they want. I can literally just think about, oh man, I would love to shoot in a church. Oh, let's do a workshop in a church. Or I would love to shoot in America. Okay, let's see if I can teach a workshop in America, get a sponsor. They will fly me to America. They will put me in a hotel. I will teach and I go back home. So teaching for me is literally the breakthrough for doing what I really love. Because let's be honest, you can't just shoot in New York and pay it for yourself. You have to rent a model, you have to rent, uh, you have to fly there, you have to get an Airbnb or a, a hotel or whatever. It's way too expensive. But if you combine it with a trade show and one or two workshops, you're there. So I think everybody should find what they love to do. And if you do what you love, for example, if you love corporate work, but you don't feel like you get the freedom that that you are wanting to maybe start for your own or find another boss that will give you that freedom. Because again, you only live once, better enjoy it. And money is not everything. Now, I know you're also, you're also part of the, the Kelby One uh, in, instructor team. How did you get, how did that connection first happen? How did you first uh, get involved with, with uh, Scott Kelby? I was the first European and it went really weird. <laughs> This story, actually, it cracks me up every time I tell it, but um, I really liked Scott Kelby. Uh, who doesn't? And at one point I had this blog and in the Netherlands, there's this, this thing where if you are mediocre, everybody will love your work, right? Now, as soon as you start to get a little bit better, people will start complaining about, hey, I would do this differently, or I don't like the model, or I don't like this. And then as soon as you start teaching and you start doing it a little bit better, people start to hate you. I don't know why. It's, it's, 
somehow they don't like it when somebody excels. And I always think like, hey, that's cool, man. It's a Dutch guy. I'm Dutch. Wow, great. And I did some workshops abroad. And at one point, I did an advert for Ellingrom for uh, the D-Lights. And we got the D-Lights in here and we had a model with an outfit for an, um, an escaped um, uh, prisoner. And I gave her a gun and a D-Light. And we just made a picture with a gun and a D-Light and it said, uh, the D-Lights are a steal. And I sent it into Ellingrom and I didn't know anybody at Ellingrom at the moment. So I sent it in and I got an email back and they said like, hey, uh, we want to use this image for a worldwide campaign. What do you charge? And I was just going like, what do I charge? <laughs> Nothing. And they were going like, why not? And my idea was, you know, there are so many great photographers shooting for Ellingrom and I'm a nobody. In the Netherlands, I teach a little bit of workshops, but I'm literally a nobody. If I say 1500 euros, I'm probably under uh, aiming it. If I say 2000, maybe I'm over aiming it. I don't have a clue what they, what they charge. So I made a deal with Ellingrom at that point. The only thing you have to do is make sure that if it's possible, that my name is underneath and not as Frank Dorov, but www.frankdorov.com. Nothing more. And maybe in the future, if I teach workshops abroad, make sure that in whichever country I am, that I don't have to rent my gear. I switched to Hensel only three years ago and my whole career, Ellingrom, every country, it didn't matter where it was, there was always gear for me for free. The thing is, Scott Kelby was looking for new strokes and he saw an advert with a really nice image that he liked. He looked underneath and he saw Frank Dorov and he's been following me for years. And at one point he came to the Netherlands for a show called Professional Imaging. And on my blog, I had this little post, hey, um, I would love to meet you, Scott Kelby. And I thought it was a joke by somebody that he knew I was a fan of Scott Kelby. And I thought, well, somebody wants to pull my leg. So the only thing I posted under it was, I will be there for three days for the very simple reason. Why the hell should Scott Kelby post on my blog that he would love to meet me? Come on, that's so obvious, it's a joke, right? So I came up and there was this huge stage and Scott was there with uh, a friend of his. I don't remember who it was. And I just came up and I was just walking there and I was looking at Enuik, my wife, and I was going like, I'm, I'm, I'm an older guy, but sh should I ask an autograph or is that something for kids, you know? But I would love <laughs> to tell the autograph. <laughs> my wife just said like, why don't you just go up there and in, in, introduce yourself? I said, I don't want to introduce myself to Scott Kelby. At that moment, he turned around and was going like, Frankie, and he just jumped <laughs> off the stage, arms <laughs> wide open, jumped up to me, hugged me like a bear hug, and I was just going like, <laughs> he looked at me and he said, Frankie, I'm so happy to meet you. And the only thing I said, and it was the stupidest thing ever, did you really post on my blog? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, he, he just watched me teach and I was doing stuff on the Ellingrom booth at that point uh, only. And at I think seven o'clock in the morning, my phone rang and one of the guys that I've, that follows me on online said, Frank, you have to watch Scott Kelby's blog. I was going like, do you know how early it is? He said, trust me, as soon as you see it, you will love it. And there was this one small piece about professional imaging in the Netherlands and this whole piece about Frank Dorhoff doing stuff and playing with light meters and whatnot more. And I just read it and I was going like, this is not good. You know, this is way too much attention. I'm, I'm really a low key guy. So I, I didn't like it at first. And for the next two days, we really connected. 
somehow. And Scott is just a real, he's a real guy. You know, there's a lot of people in this industry that are not real. They look at you and they go like, hey, Frank, we love you. And then as soon as you turn your back, they go like, who the fuck was that? Uh, who the heck was that? Sorry. <laughs> Sorry, YouTube. Uh, who the heck is that? And at one point, Scott really felt like he was real, you know, like it was all not 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 play and make believe. So at one point I got Matt Kloskowski, I think, on the email, like, hey, do you want to do a guest blog for Scott? I was going like, yes, sure, I can write something. So I wrote a guest blog. And what I didn't know is probably that was my final test. And they asked me like, hey, can you come to America to do videos? Believe it or not, I denied. And I denied twice. Because for the very simple reason, let's be honest, I'm Frank Doorhoff from the Netherlands. And Scott Kelby has like Joe McNally, Rick Salmon, uh, Joel Grimes. They have like the biggest names in the world. Jay Mizell, come on, that, that guy is a legend. And then Frank. So I didn't feel at home and they kept asking me. And at one point I got this schedule like, okay, if you come over to the U uh, US, we're going to film videos for you. And I got this contract and I literally looked at it and I said to Anna should we do it? And I asked them like, hey guys, it's okay. But the money that I have to pay for the recordings, that's a little bit steep. Can we lower that? And he said, that's not the money. That's the money we're going to pay you. <laughs> and it wasn't a lot, right? But it was just like... I was actually thinking that I had to pay for the production of the videos because I was totally not not clear about how something like that worked. So I saw an, an amount and I thought like, hey, we have to pay that for the videos and then we get royalties because a lot of uh, companies do it that way. And at one point we just said, you know what, if everything's being paid for us and they really want me, so they pay for the plane, we get a nice fee for the videos. Again, it's not a lot, but it's it's something, right? And they put you up in a hotel and we love America. So, hey, why not? Let's see it as a trip. And if I failed, at least I warned them three or four times, right? And actually the videos did really, really well. And at that point, uh, they asked me to do Photoshop World once. And they literally told me like, hey, you know, you're from Europe. It's very expensive to get you over here. You can do Photoshop World once and maybe then skip two. So they did East Coast, West Coast. So what the idea was I would do East Coast skip West Coast, skip East Coast, do West Coast, then skip, skip and do it every this time. They skipped me once in, I believe now, seven or eight years. So yeah. overall, it's been for me still very surreal. Sometimes I just have to pinch myself like the first time I came in and you have the instructor's room with all those guys and we can I literally just sat down in a corner going like, this is so weird. It's like Queen asking you to be on stage playing guitar with Brian May. It's just insane. It's mind-boggling. And actually, uh, I believe it was LaDawn, uh, a Zeiser, so the wife of um, uh, David Zeiser, that actually came up to us and said, like, do you want to sit alone or do you want to join and mingle? Because we're one big happy family. And we decided to, of course, just mingle. And I can tell you, it's really a cool group of people. I don't know if you have interviewed a lot of the Kelby One instructors, but it's literally an honor to be part of that group. And you will find out that a lot of those instructors are willing to share everything and don't hold back. And that's something in the industry that you don't see a lot. It's yes. often that they will teach, but somehow the Kelby One instructors, they also mingle with the audience. It's it's 
I don't know. It's I feel very, very welcome there. And I'm just very proud to be part of that group. I tell you what's yeah. really what's really interesting for us is is that you know since we started this uh, this podcast, I mean when we first started the podcast, you know, it was mainly just Nick and me talking to each other about photography stuff because that's kind of what we do every day, all day, anyway. Um, and then we started having guests on the show, and you know, initially it was it was friends of ours and you know, people that we knew, um, and then you know we kind of thought you know interviewing guests is so much fun. Not only is it so much fun, but it's also, you know, we learn a lot and, you know, uh, our we, we get um, the really positive feedback from from our listeners and stuff. And then, you know, we thought, like, OK, well, why don't we reach out to uh, to some people that we don't know <laughs> to come on the show? And I have to say, I mean, you know, we've uh, I mean, we've, we've both been super thrilled and like, you know, super surprised to see how, you know, how positive the response has been to that, you know, from from a range of uh, of Kelby One instructors, but also, you know, across the whole industry. And I think one of the things that that we've both found out is that, you know, you may look up to somebody, and you may like, you may think like, well, you know, this this guy's like an incredible, you know, photographer, and you know, uh, in your eyes, like super famous for what they do, and you know, and and all that. And then, of course, when you when you speak to them, you realize, a there's a really nice person behind it. And secondly, we're all in the same boat. You know, we're all going through the same thing. Like we're all dealing with uh, the pandemic and it's all had kind of a similar impact on all of us. And and immediately you connect on a much more human level, mm-hmm. you know, through that. And you know, also the thing is when you start to teach, you have to be a social person and otherwise it will be a very, very short career. There are <laughs> so many true. people that are so full of themselves and... I, I don't want to mention any names, but there was, when I started out and I didn't join Kelby at that point, there was this photographer during a UK tour and we had a problem with a projector and I just didn't like it at all because all my pictures just looked very, very weird. And he was the headliner. So we just talked to him like, hey, can you please come up to the office? And um, I want to talk about projectors, but the organization doesn't listen to me and maybe they will listen to you. So he came up and the only thing he said was, people don't come for my images, they come for me. I was just going like, oh, dude, that's terrible (laughs) to say something like that. Do you want to see your work presented, right? So he walked out. So I decided, you know what, I'm going to sit in his class. So I sat in his class and he explained something. I'm going to explain the technique to you guys very simple. One of the coolest and literally the freaking coolest things in Photoshop is create a new layer select soft light, and then you get a new option called neutral gray. Do that. Now, when you have that neutral gray layer, you can use a white paint to actually make it lighter and a darker paint to make it darker. We call this painting with light, right? Now, when you do this, the same thing with a red channel, you go to your channels, you copy your red channel, you copy that on an empty layer, and you use soft light to combine that with your original image. Now make that soft light layer above it and you can paint everything in. So you have a very high contrast image, a little bit like Vogue with white skin and you can just play with it. When I teach something like that, I teach it during a seminar in about five minutes. It's very, very simple to do. So he did a technique and I was just looking at the technique and I was going like, I don't know what he want to do, but this is really weird. And in the end, he literally did exactly the same that I did. But he talked about it for 45 minutes. 
after, and he, he made it very interesting, trust me, but it looks less, way complicated. Like when I tell you how to drive a car, it's very simple. Press the clutch, shift, let the clutch come up and give a little bit of gas, right? That's how you drive a car. Now imagine this. Okay, so you press in the clutch, but because you press in the clutch, all these wheels start to turn and you spend way more time on all those wheels that start to turn. Now you move your hand to, you see what I mean? Like you tell the same thing, but you tell so much more about it and you show so much more that people just get confused. So afterwards I, I left the, the theater and he went up to me, he said, hey, Frank, did you like the show? And I'm, I'm totally honest, sorry for that. So I looked at him and said, yeah, it's really a show, right? He said, what do you mean? I said, you know the technique that you taught him? You know how can you, you can do that way faster? And I'm not a Photoshop expert. He said, if you do this, it's only two steps. He said, Frank, I never will teach that because then everybody can do it. Now, that's the difference between what you will find out with Kelby One instructors like me and other instructors. I am very, very much in the, um, how do you call it, uh, overtuiging. Um, I'm very much convinced that even if I give you my camera and my lighting setup, you can never, ever take a Frank Doroff image, but yeah. I can never, ever take a Nick Kirby image or a Kirsten Lutz image because it's not mathematics. It is photography. One millisecond different, one millisecond in expression will take a shot to a completely different position. Now, when you start doing Photoshop, Photoshop tinting, I can give you my presets and you will have the same tinting that I have. But because the whole emotion of the shot is different, you will never have a Frank Dorof shot. So why not just teach everybody everything? Absolutely. Because as soon as I teach you, I'm literally getting some feedback from the audience. Like, hey, Frank, do you know if you press that key, it's a little bit faster? Sorry, or? And I said, no, don't say sorry. I learned something. And I think that's the whole part in teaching. As a teacher, I don't know everything. I know a lot of stuff that I like to portray to my students. But if they know something that's faster or quicker, please tell me because we can all grow together. And I think that's a different approach between instructors. And I think that's what drew me very much towards at Kelby One. Because if you watch Kelby One and you see the videos and you compare it to other platforms, it is different. And I think that's mostly the instructors. That's how teaching someone a topic is, it should be done. And that's how everybody should, 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 should do it. There is no reason. Okay. Let's go back to guitars for a second. If you had Brian May's guitar, his entire rig, and you went and stood up there and played, you're not going to sound like Brian May. No, absolutely you, not. It's just not, you know, you might get close. You're going to have you in it, your own spin on it, your interpretation of how that lick that whatever riff you're playing should sound. You're never going to be like uh, Brian May. And the same is absolutely true of photography and any anything like this. So why not teach those techniques to people? People, if everybody gets better, how is that a bad thing? They're not going to take work away from you. If that's what you're worried about, that's not going to happen because people go to you for the shots that you take. And because of the how you go about taking that shot. You know, you talk about the emotion, you know exactly when to take that right shot, when the right amount of motion or movement is happening. You know, all those kind of things. So why not teach it? The most important thing is actually that it's not about the photo. It's not about the technique. 
a good photo. And imagine this, when you go back to like the Stone Age or even further back, what was the first thing that we, we did? The first thing that we did was actually we went out and we hunted dinosaurs, right? We wanted something to eat. So we needed a dinosaur. So we went out with 40 people with sticks and stones. We killed a dinosaur and we ate the dinosaur. Now, as soon as you see paintings of caves, do you see 40 people killing a dinosaur? No, you only see one or two. <laughs> so even in the old days, they were already doing Hollywood stuff. They were already photoshopping. They were already telling a story. And this is the thing that a lot of people forget. When you look at every single photography up until, let's say, 2010, everything that had to do with art was all storytelling. The Last Supper, Da Vinci, uh, Caravaggio, Van Gogh, Rembrandt. Although there are still lives, there's still a story there and a lot of story. Look at Caravaggio. Everything is a story in his paintings. Now, when you fast forward nowadays and you look at the Kardashians or whatever, you have duck faces, you have selfies. Where's the story part? There is absolutely with photography also. When I look at our Facebook group, Mastering the Model Shoot, I see a lot of great ladies being photographed, some scarcely clothed, some some totally naked, some totally in fashion. But there's hardly any image where I go like, oh, I really like the story behind that image. No, it's mostly I like the girl. I like the lighting. In all honesty, for me, at that point, an image failed. Because if I look at an image, I don't want to look at the lighting. I don't want to look at the lady. I want to look at something and I go like, wow, I love that strong color. Or, wow, I love that story. Or look at where, what, what is he thinking about? What is he doing? So even when I do a beauty portrait or some something for a hairdresser, I will literally sit down with my hairdressers and go like, okay, so we're going to shoot your new catalog. Okay, so what is the story behind the hair? And the first time I worked with Ware, that's one of the hairdressers we work a lot with, they looked really weird at me. Like, hey, you're the first photographer that wants to sit down and tell us the story. I said, yeah, but I have to shoot your new, new stuff. Why, why is this hair called fire? Well, because we want fiery out. Uh, yeah, I don't know, actually. It's called fire because I said, yeah, go on, go on. Why is it fire? Yeah, because it has to be passion. Okay, what? okay, great. So fire is passion. Okay, why is this called snow? Yeah, because it's really white. I said, no, no, go on. Why is it snow? Yeah, because it's white. No, no, not because it's white. Okay, because it has to look cool. I said, okay. So now when I took the shots, I would actually think about, okay, fire, passion. Okay, model, look straight into the camera. Try to melt the lens with your eyes. Take the shot. Now, when I took snow, cool. I looked at the model go like, okay, don't look straight into the camera. Look a little bit on the side. There's hardly any difference. But as soon as my client sees the image, they go like, that's snow, that's fire. Oh my God, how did you do that? And it's that 10 minutes before the photo shoot that is so cool. Now, if you have Netflix, there's a series called Abstract. And there's a photographer there, and I hope I pronounce it. I believe it's Platini. And what you actually see is he's talking to a very famous uh, general. And the only thing he does is he just sits down and go like, hey, how's the kid? Oh, yeah, yeah, he's fine. Yeah, I heard he uh, graduated college, right? Yeah, yeah. And you see that he was going from this, like, okay, I have to take a picture, to more this. And at one point, the shoulders dropped down, his chin relaxed, he got his arms like this. And he just started talking instead of being this stone figure. He was a dad. And at that point, he took the picture. 
And he only took one picture. And the guy said, okay, when are you going to take the picture? Oh, we already did. And he looked at the image and he go like, how did you do that? That's me. And that's because he listened to the guy that was in front of the camera. And when we do, for example, uh, headshots for um, corporate headshots, I always ask people like, hey, what kind of job do you want? Because we have to make uh, resume images sometimes for people. Now, if they go like, okay, I want to work in a supermarket, I take a totally different picture than for a CEO. For example, a little trick for a CEO, I will always go a little bit down and shoot up. Because they look a little bit bigger, right? Now, when I shoot somebody that has to help people, I will try to get the arms like this, like really open and nice. But if somebody is in corporate, I will do it more like closed. It, it's those, and it, it depends per person, right? Sometimes this looks really open. Sometimes this, look, this looks really open. It just depends on the clothing somebody wears, on the face expression, if they wear a hat, yes or no, or glasses. But you really have to dive into the character of the person before you take a picture. I fully agree with that because I, I find that with headshots, um, it's you would shoot a nurse or a doctor, somebody who's in the in the health service, completely differently from, say, a divorce lawyer, for example, because you don't or want a, to, or a cop or a cop, yeah, because you don't want mm -hmm. a divorce lawyer to be like all oh, open and friendly, because that's not the kind of character they are. You know, you want your divorce lawyer to to look serious and they get the job done, whilst. While somebody in the medical profession, you would want to shoot them so they're open and friendly, you know, and welcoming, that sort of thing. So it's a completely different thing in the way that you light them and the way that you pose them, the way that you move the head, you know, all of that, all of that kind of stuff. So I've, I've, I've learned that the hard way, <laughs> I think, when it comes to headshots. The, the thing is, when you look at, and I love movies, uh, when you look at great actors, like, for example, one of my all-time favorites is Bruce Campbell. And he's, of course, the, the ultimate B actor, right? Evil Dead <laughs> and whatever. A every yeah, movie yeah. he did, I love. And you know why Bruce Campbell, for me, is that person? He has so many faces. And when you talk to him, and I, I never talked to him. He, he, that would be awesome. But anyway, I, I read his book. And then when you read his book, you will literally see that he really dives into those characters. And you have the same thing. And I don't remember. Oh, I feel really bad now. It's a Batman fan. Uh, I don't know who played in the Dark Knight trilogy. Um, Christian Bale. Yeah, Christian Bale. He had that role where he did the machinist. Mm -hmm. yeah. Oh, yes. He, he lost, I don't know how many pounds unreal. for that. But unreal. And then look at how he looks at Batman. Yeah. Like really buffed up. And... I was just going like, that's what we have to do as photographers. If you shoot somebody, make sure that you know why you shoot them and how. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And yeah. I think a lot of photographers don't see that story anymore. And by the way, about meeting great people and about getting that character in, uh, Brian May, Queen, is of course one of the legendary guitar players, right? It's without any doubt. And the thing is like, he's legendary. We met him. I think four or five times. Every time I met him, one time he was very, very sick. One time he lost his daughter and he was looking for her. And he promised me, when I find my daughter, I will come back to your seat and I will sign everything you want. And I I just looked at my mom at that point. I was there with my mom. I said, we're never going to see him again, right? And my mom said, probably not. <laughs> 20 minutes later, he sat in our table and he said, okay, what can I, what, what do you need to be signed? And I had this, I remember that I had a white guitar belt and an instructional video, a Starlix. He signed them both. 
Three years later, there was a music auction in Hilversum and we were standing outside and Brian May came outside and um, he went inside and the bodyguards came out and they said, do you want to be on stage with the other Queen fans? Uh, because then you can hear the sound of the guitar. I was kind of like, oh yeah, sure. And he had this Fox AC30s stacked up and we were on a wooden stage. I kid you not, it's never in my life I had more goosebumps than when he started playing the solo Too Much Love Will Kill You because that whole stage was vibrating. So we were brought outside after the song. It was only one song and it was raining and he came out and he was coughing. He had the fever. And I remember that his tour manager wanted to get him into the car and he literally got into an argument like, no, I'm going to stay outside. I'm first going to do autographs, but Brian, you're sick. I don't care. Those people are the reason I'm famous. Everybody got his autograph and there wasn't any like pressure. Everybody was totally relaxed because he wouldn't leave until everybody got his signature. And then it was my turn. He looked at my face three years, Brian May, white guitar belt three years ago, London, right? <laughs> He's going like, wow. He opened up the trunk and there's literally a picture somewhere of me with the red special and Brian May. Now, fast forward, when I met Anna Week, she was pregnant and we ended up in his tour bus for an autograph. And we went outside. Uh, first, he asked like, hey, do you know what it's going to be? I said, no, but if it's a boy, we're going to call him Brian. And he literally said, don't do that. I said, why not? <laughs> he said, if you don't like my music anymore. I said, that will never happen. So we got a son and his name is Brian. Yeah. <laughs> and we went outside the tour bus and there was this big bodyguard coming up to us. He said, do you want to follow me, please? I said, why? Brian May doesn't want a pregnant woman standing in line. So follow me. So we went through all those boxes with the crest of Queen on it because it was the Back to the Light tour. So they still had all the boxes with the Queen crest. I just looked at it and bodyguard was going like, do you want to touch it? Would I? <laughs> so I just put two of my hands on those crests and I was just going like, breathe in, breathe out. Never going to wash those hands again until the pandemic. Then I started to wash my hands. But anyway, so long story short, there is a difference between how people approach it. One of the other guys that I was big into, for example, was Ingwi Malmsteen. And we actually run his fan club in the Netherlands for two years. The thing was that the first times I met him, he was really nice. He introduced me to his wife, Amber, at that moment. He introduced me to his band. I got like a handful of plectrums thrown to my face and could keep them, of course. And then at one point, he was getting a little bit more attention and he just became an ass. Sorry for the expression. And at one point, it ended up that I literally just tore up my uh, fan club letter and just throw it in his face for the very simple reason. You don't push me away. I'm your yeah. fan club manager. Uh, sorry, your fan club runner in the Netherlands. At that point, there was no internet, so we did everything by letters. And at one point, he just pushed me aside. Do you know who I am? I just looked at him and I said, do you know who I am? He said, no, I don't give a care. He said it slightly differently, but I can't say that for YouTube. So I just put out my paper like Access All Area Fan Club, and I just tore it up and threw it in his face. And I said, forget about it. You don't have a fan club in the Netherlands anymore. And that's the difference between... I think when you look up to somebody, I don't know how we got into this conversation, but <laughs> it's like we're teaching the same thing. Don't hold back. Just teach everything you know, and people will probably just take out of it what they need for their set and just create their own looks. Mm -hmm. I tell whilst we're whilst we're at the um, on the on the Ingvi Malmsteen dissing uh, topic, I have a little story for you there as well. So I went I went to a, co to a music college in London. 
um, it was actually, it was an American college um, in London. And, um, and we had these really famous artists come in and do masterclasses. And of course, it'd be very exciting. Like we had Chad Smith from the Chili Peppers come in and, you know, lots of really, like really, really, really famous people. And so we had Ingvi Malmsteen come in to do a masterclass. And typically the way these masterclasses would work is they would play and they would demonstrate stuff and then there'd be a Q&A at the end. And you could, as a student, you could ask some questions, you know, and if we, you know, if you're, if you were lucky, you'd get a chance to play with them, you know, if they had like a backing band or something like that. And so Ingvi Malmsteen came in, it was, it, was, it was hilarious. There were probably about, I don't know, I want to say maybe 50, 60 students in this auditorium. And so his car rocks up, he sort of swans in wearing a big old fur coat. <laughs> and I'm thinking, okay. Yeah. And so, you know, and his guitar was set up on the stage. It was really just a combo amp and his, and his uh, white Stratocaster thing. He sat down, then he started playing about 3 million notes in like five minutes. And then he put the guitar down and he said, all he said was, and this is why you are never going to be as good as me. Then he got up and left. And Ooh. every, everyone in the room, we all, we were all guitarists there. So, you know, the guitar department, basically, we were probably all to some level, a fan of Ingvi Malmsteen beforehand. After that, that was it. I've never listened to an Ingvi Malmsteen record ever again. Same here. You know, it's, uh, it was just like that one moment, you know, that, that one incident that really changed your whole perception of somebody. And it's just incredible how, how quick what that else? can. I met Brian May and I met Roger Taylor. Roger Taylor, I only met three times. And he's exactly the same as Brian. They're very, very down to earth. And look at them now with Paul, with um, Adam Lambert. Yes. They don't have to work anymore. They don't have to be on YouTube anymore. They have millions. And when you look at Brian May's YouTube uh, or Brian May's Instagram, every single day he's sharing stuff. He's answering people. Come on, he's a legend. He doesn't have to do that stuff. And the same thing is during the pandemic, uh, Steve Vai is another great example. And Steve Vai, in my opinion, there's like, you have guitar players, like the best guitar player in the world. And then you have Steve Vai. It's, it's <laughs> yeah. a totally different category. There's literally no category. Like, he now has hand surgery. I don't know if you saw the video where he plays Knapsack. Yeah. Yeah. Watch that very closely. He plays the whole song with one hand, right? Mm -hmm. Did you notice something that I noticed right away that really shocked me? Mm. Look at his neck. There's no dampener on. Oh, right. When you play something with one hand, you always have a dampener on the top because all the strings will run through. Yeah. He didn't have a dampener and he played the whole stuff live. So somebody said, no, you probably recorded it. I said, no, watch the live stream from Alien Love Secrets. He plays Knapsack there. He literally just picks up the guitar. Yeah, I wrote something with one hand and he plays it live. So there was no editing whatsoever. He didn't miss a note. Yeah. And then when you meet somebody like Vi, Every interview you see of him, he's very much into the uh, the, um, the mental stuff. So that's not really for me. But he's so down to earth, and he's so like, "Oh, I'm not really great. No, no, I can't play. I can't pick. I can't sweep." And I go like, "Okay, you can't sweep. <laughs> <laughs> no chance for the rest and, of and us. I can't even hold a guitar, right?" Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and I think that's the thing that, uh, and maybe that's also my Dutch upbringing. Like we we are very low key, and I think that. That, that's also one of the things that I love about teaching. Like, don't get the expectations too high. If you go like Momstein, like, you can never play as good as me. 
And in all honesty, uh, I have a Momstein strat here because I really liked Momstein in the past. I, I don't have this speed, but in all honesty, it doesn't really do weird stuff. It's all harmonic minor and it's a lot of pentatonic stuff in there. And the only thing he does really well is play really clean and fast. But when you look at somebody like Vi, he really creates something different. Every album you listen is different. And when you look at Momstein, every album is the same. The solos are almost the same. It's only on positions. You used the word down to earth about people like Brian May and, and so forth, but that that's the word I would use for Kelby One instructors, right? Down to earth is exactly what you all all are. We, we've interviewed a, a number of um, a number of the Kelby One instructors now. And there is similarities between all of you. And I guess that's what Scott kind of looks for. Um, you know, it's genuine, it's down to earth, it's open and being just you know, wanting to share. And, yeah. and obviously on top of that, having an insane, insanely good ability to be able to share that information. Yeah, concisely, accurately, and in an enjoyable way to listen to. And you, you know, the thing is what, what you said, he looks for that. And I think it, isn't played out at say, um, a lot of people when I talk to them about Kelby, they always go like, yeah, but Frank, be careful. They're Americans and sometimes they play. And I always go like, no, no, no. And for people who know my Kelby videos, there's a video on there that's called uh, Motion. And we did a shoot in there with a ballet dancer inside a, a school. Now, when you look at that video and you don't know the information I'm going to give you now, it just looks like a normal video. Now, watch it again with the information I give you now. The day we arrived, we had a meeting with RC in a restaurant. And I came out of a plane with air conditioning, wearing shorts. And that really hurt my legs because we flew economy comfort. So I'm a tall guy. I'm almost two meters. So I was cramped up pretty much. And RC wanted to take us out for dinner. So we just landed. And we were already a little bit jet lagged and my knees were hurting. And we said, hey, you know what, let's go to the restaurant. So he had this beautiful model and it was in uh, Ybor City, I believe, in uh, Tampa. And he said, I, I have this model and you don't have to shoot her, but she's just going to join us for dinner. I was going like, dude, if you have a model here, I want to shoot her outside because it's such a beautiful area there. And I went outside and I took a shot. And the thing was, I saw this little sign. And I needed that sign in the picture. So what I did is I squatted down through my knees, almost hit with my butt the floor, took the picture. Everything went fine. I did that a million times. Only this time I didn't get up. I got up and you heard this. And Anna Week said it was terrifying. You heard this knick. And in my whole life, I never had more pain than that moment. And what I actually did is I tore my meniscus straight off. And it hurt like an MF, uh, literally, it hurt. I was crying. So they cut this chair out. I was sitting in the middle of the road because they couldn't move me anywhere. And at one point, um, my leg was getting like this big on my knee. And they paid for everything, right? They paid for everything to get me to the States. And Scott immediately um, was called and it was like, he was abroad and was like, Frank, just send him home. And I was just going like, no, 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 I'm not going home. I'm here to record videos. We're going to do it. And they got me into the car. And I was thinking like the next day will be better. The next day wasn't better. And if you look at that video, actually in the end, you see me laying on the floor, taking a picture of the model. And normally what I do is if I take that picture, I will actually get up 
and explain the stuff. Like, for example, okay, now laying down. Okay, so guys, what I just did was I was laying down on the floor, taking the picture, right? In that video, you see me laying on the floor and literally while I'm laying on the floor, I'm still telling the story. As soon as the camera was up, I literally just cried from pain. Now comes the part that's really important in this story to give you exactly how Scott works. He was abroad. When I was in Kelby One studio, literally discussing with David Moser if we could continue, yes or no. And I said, yes, I'm going to continue. It hurts, but we're still going to do it. Just give me extra assistant and like these little crates where I can sit on. So I don't have to squat down, but just sit on a little crate. Scott came in with his car and he still had the suitcases in the back. So he literally came from the airport. The car was still running. He jumped out, immediately came up to me. Frank, are you doing fine? He didn't even went home. And that's the part where when you work for somebody that's so high up, they will probably just go over the phone. Oh, yeah. How much will it cost to send them back home? Hmm. Okay. Can you try to make them convinced to do more of those shots? No. Okay. Then just send them home and it's our loss. With them, the only thing he was thinking about is how is my instructor doing? And I think that's the part where you find out if somebody is genuine or if somebody's just playing. And I can tell you one thing from all the experience we have now is those guys and all the instructors are really what they pertain. You see the same thing in the podcast, as you say, they're very, very nice people to work with. So yeah, that's, that was my experience, how I got into Kelby one. So yeah. <laughs> what a horrific and amazing story all at the same time. <laughs> <laughs> horrific. It <laughs> yeah. took me two years to recover from that one because I was afraid <laughs> for the surgery. But at one point it just kept locking up and that really hurts. So at one point I just had the surgery, but you are six weeks. And that's the thing that we started out with the pandemic, right? Mm -hmm. The thing was, I knew that if I had surgery, I was out for six weeks because you have to uh, uh, walk on crutches for three mm -hmm. weeks on two crutches and then for three weeks on one. And you have so little time that six weeks planning in your agenda is like impossible. So after two years and every trade show, it happened at least one or twice that my knee locked up. And that was just terrible because then you had to put your knee, uh, your foot on your other knee and just press down like this. And then it would unlock. Didn't sound right. And it didn't feel right. So after that, I got the surgery. And in the end, it was very easy, by the way. But it's, you know, sometimes you really have to take that time to let yourself heal. And I think with the pandemic, we are forced to think about that and really take a little bit of that gas back. Hmm, absolutely. You know, I had, a, I had a hernia operation a couple of years ago, right? And I, I gigged two days later. I was on stage. And I'm convinced that by doing that, it was the wrong thing to do. But yep. I was in pain. I was sat on a seat, you know, all of that kind of stuff, as you can imagine. It took me two years to get over that. It was only a few months ago where I stopped feeling something wrong in that area. Mm. And I'm sure that had I taken a few more days rest or another week's, two weeks rest as I was supposed to do, I think it would have been over within a few weeks. But yeah. I, I was afraid that it would hurt. And in the end, I don't have any scars because I only have three moles, right? Like mother uh, bird marks. It looked like bird marks because they go in with pins and they don't cut anymore. They just go in with pins. It's a, a, we call it kijk operatie, um, a C operation where they just go in. Anyway, they don't cut. Oh, and, uh, yeah. And I was just thinking about like, oh, this will really hurt for six weeks. And that was the part that they didn't tell me. And I don't know what your experience was, but the, the moment I woke up from surgery, 
I expected a lot of pain and I didn't use any painkillers at all. I didn't have any pain. So for my mind, I could just walk. Mm-hmm. And they actually told me, you can walk, but don't do it for at least three weeks. Don't, don't put any pressure on it. Mm-hmm. And to be honest, I didn't. So I tried to do it very nicely. So when I went to bed, I actually, I could walk stairs, mm-hmm. but they said, don't do it. And with physiotherapy, the same thing, you have to bang, uh, press. And I already do a lot of fitness. So I literally went down from, I don't know wh- how many kilograms at that point, but I had to go to 25%. Mm-hmm. And it just felt bad, you know, it just felt like I didn't do anything. Mm-hmm. So I raised it to 50% and immediately the guy said, don't, don't, don't. It feels like you can do it, but you mm-hmm. can't because it's, they explained to me that there are no nerves there. So you don't feel the pain, but it's literally there. You are destroying your your knee. Mm-hmm. And because you don't feel it, you just do it. So I literally hold straight to what they said. So after three weeks, I switched to one crutch. And after six weeks, I was on the mountain bike again and bicycling and everything else. And I think for me, it took about four months and there's no problem at all anymore. I don't even feel the difference between left or right in power. Hmm. So be careful when you do something like that. Anyway, that has nothing to do with photography. Sorry. (laughs) Well, you know. Photography is just like, uh, it just frames what we do. Yeah. <laughs> it's just podcast. a reason to have a chat. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Getting more into a chat session. <laughs> <laughs> did you, like, uh, during, the, during the pandemic, did you, uh, did you get an opportunity to, to create more like, content for your YouTube channel? I thought I would, but there I have to be totally honest, no. <laughs> I did record two instructional videos, which I would never normally be able to, because one of them was actually Photoshop and Lightroom. And they have been asking me that for years. And I'm not a Photoshop and Lightroom expert, but I have all these little tricks and tips that I do. I always tell people, I'm the best Photoshopper in the world in what I do. Nobody's better than me in what I do. But if you ask me to do anything outside that, I'm the worst Photoshopper in the world. (laughs) So I thought like, why not record those tips that I have in a video? And I once started with just a list. And I just looked at the list and I was going like, hell no, never. I'm not going to do that because that will take me at least three hours to record uh, to uh, at least three hours of material. So that would take me 12 hours to record. So I'm not going to do that. And another thing that people really wanted for me was a light of the classical master. So film noir lighting, uh, hardcore lighting, but it's also very difficult to set up and to film correctly. And when the pandemic hits, the first thing I noticed was that Netflix was not my solution. Guitar playing was not my solution for that point because it was very early on. So I just locked myself up inside here where you, where you are seeing now. We put a backdrop in and I just started recording all the tips I had on Photoshop. We ended up with a seven and a half hour instructional video. <laughs> seven and a half hours. It's insane. Yeah. And we just put it out online and was like, okay, you can buy this. And then we got so many questions like, hey, when are you going to do Light of the Old Masters? Because now that you've done this, the other one should be easy, right? And I just discussed it with Anna and we just wrote a script. Normally, I don't do it. We just start filming. We wrote a script because I knew that I'm probably going to film something now. And then in four or five or six months time, I have to exactly glue that together with when we have a model. So we literally set everything up with the flags. Just let it sit in the studio for three months because there was no work anyway. And then when the model came in, I just had to watch the videos back. Like, okay, I said this. I said, okay, don't have to say that in front of the camera. And then we filmed the part with the model. 
and we did some outside shots. So we released two instructional videos and we did some stuff on YouTube. But the thing is, finding the motivation to do a tips video on YouTube is very easy if I'm teaching workshops because I'm getting ideas during the workshop and I go like, oh, at home. And you're already in that rush. You know, you're in that rush of doing stuff. So it's very easy to stop working, grab your iPad. In the end, we just had to glue everything back together again. So when the model came in, I just had to rewatch the videos, think about what I wanted to say, and then just combine everything together. And so we did release those two videos. The thing, however, that I find really hard is when you are in a rush of working, you're constantly working, working, working. So it's very easy to just grab an iPad or a phone or a camera and just record a quick tips video. Now I'm in a totally different mindset. I'm mostly of the time I'm zeroed out. I'm very relaxed. I'm watching movies. I'm playing guitar, uh, reading comics, biking a lot, and of course doing some photography, but it's really on a relaxed way. And then to grab an iPad and record a video, it's, I don't know, it's just, and it's also because the vlogs are now totally quiet because normally we have two workshops a week. So that means we have two vlogs a week. And you get into a certain rhythm with uploading and editing. And I edit everything on my iPad Pro. So it's like I teach the workshop. I come home, I empty the cards, I retouch the images, I create the vlog and I upload the vlog and I'm done. And now my whole day is totally different. Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday. I, sometimes I don't even know what day it is. Like everything is just blurring together. It's not that we don't work, but everything that was structure is totally gone. So normally you just know on Friday and Saturday it's workshops. On Sunday it's retouching images and making the final videos. On Monday it's creating Facebook content. On Tuesday it's calibrations for the home theater. On Wednesday we do bookkeeping. On Thursday we're going to prepare the workshop. So you're always in that same and in between we do photo shoots. Now it's like on Monday we do nothing. On Tuesday we do nothing. <laughs> on Wednesday it's the same as Monday. Yeah. It's Friday. It's almost weekend. How do you mean it's always weekend? It's yeah. been weekend the whole week. Yeah. So it's very difficult to push yourself and kick yourself to record a video. Mm. On the other hand, um, the cool thing is, and we are doing that now, is creating some smaller videos on the iPad Pro on mobile workflows. So I recently <laughs> did one on the difference between the clone and the heel tool. Mm -hmm. And I have a few more ideas. And I find that if I have the ideas... And it's something new. So like with the mobile workflow, we didn't do a lot yet. Mm. That's where I get my motivation and I really start recording. But doing photography tips, let's be honest, what can I do at this moment? Okay, guys, so this is a camera. When you hold it low or high, there's a difference. Mm. I've done that so many times. I don't want to do that in a separate video. Yeah. And we can't work with models. So what's left? Do something that people don't like yeah. or just keep quiet and do some live streams with, for example, my best work or Tether Tools, or why do we shoot Sony? And I think those live streams are still keeping the people interested. Because if you disappear, there's a lot of photographers that during the pandemic just disappear. They go like, poof, they're gone. Yeah. And then as soon as they start working again, they will be online again. And I think those photographers will find it very hard to find their audience back. Hmm. And with me, it's like we went from 100% to maybe 20%, but we're still there. We're still engaging with people online every day. We try to post a tip or a video. Mm. And so we try to keep busy. But in all honesty, it's very, very hard. Mm. I mean, this first, you know, for us, this was at the very beginning of the pandemic, you know, as, as we spoke before we, got, we went online. 
you know, when we first started this this podcast, um, it was really a means to give a structure because, you know, like you mentioned, it was like, you know, you'd, you know, you'd, you'd wake up and you'd be like, what day is it today? Yeah. Oh, it's Wednesday? Really? No idea. And then, of course, you get to the point where you wake up and you go, what day is it today? I don't care. Yeah. So same, <laughs> you know. And so we, we realized that, you know, we needed something to really just give us a little bit of structure. And so we, you know, we started... Uh, recording a podcast episode on a Monday, and then we'd release it on a Thursday, and so it would give us this this cycle every week, you know. So be like, I okay, think smart. And so you know, for us, it was really something that was driving us forward, and it was kind of, you know, almost like we were giving ourselves deadlines, so it would force us into gear, you know, and it, w- it would kind of make us do stuff. Um, yeah. And of course, yeah, I mean, there's there, you know, there were days when you get up, and you go. Oh, I can't believe I've, you know we have to we have to record or whatever. Um, but I think as we've as we've gone along, it's become more and more and more exciting because because we have you know we we get the opportunity to talk to really interesting people, right? like we mentioned earlier. And so it's like it's no problem, you know, for for us to get us to get ourselves out of bed and you know and, uh, and setting up and because. Of course, it's always, you know, there's, there's a certain degree of hassle. Like my shooting space is actually part of my house. It's just a little extension over there. And I'm sitting in what what is my office or my editing space, but it's actually also our living room. So, you know, our living room is over there, my shooting space there. So I have to basically take everything down and set everything up. And it takes like, it takes about an hour to set everything up, lights and whatever else. Um, and... You know, of course, sometimes it can feel like a bit of a, a bit of a hassle having having to do that. But it, you know, when, when you keep your eye on the end on the end result, like the opportunity to speak to somebody, have a really good conversation, you know, uh, then it just makes it all worth it. And of course, when you think like, well, you know, these videos that we're making or these podcast episodes that we're making, they actually have an impact on other people. There are people out there who look forward to them. They listen. They like listening to them, and uh, you know, and they comment on things and. You kind of go well. Actually, you know what we're doing here. It's not really only for ourselves, although that's technically how it started. It was really something that we wanted to do for ourselves to get ourselves through the, you know, the lockdown and everything. But it's actually had quite an impact on a select, on tens of people. I would say, you know, on a select small audience, even if it's one. Yes, exactly. exactly. And it's worth it. I, I don't believe in numbers. Like some people go like, hey, your YouTube channel, it only has 26,000 subscribers. You should have a million with the stuff you put out. And I agree. And sometimes it's frustrating to see that somebody puts a video out that's total crap and they get 1 million views. And I put something out that's to the point and fast and I get 200 views. On the other hand, let's be honest, those are 200 people that took the time to watch your video. And then when I look at other videos I put out, we we have videos out there with, I believe, 60 or 70 or 100,000 views. And it's all in keywords, you know, and I just don't want to use clickbait thumbnails. So somebody told me like, if you do clickbait thumbnails, you would get way higher. I said, you know what? If I do clickbait and somebody clicks on it, they're disappointed. Every video from me where you click on, you can never be disappointed because it literally, what I say in the thumbnail is what you're going to learn or what it's going to discuss. Nothing more, nothing less. And it's not like, this is the tip that will save your life. And you open up like, close your picture and save it. Like, yeah, <laughs> yeah. we knew that, right? Yeah. So I, I think that in the end, there's always the difference between do you want a long career or do you want a really short career? 
And I literally opted for the long career. So that means that we put out content that's, that's sleeper. It's literally, and Scott always calls it evergreens. Like it's videos that you can watch again over 10 years and you can watch again over 20 years and they will still stay relevant. So over time, they will accumulate while all the others, as soon as they know it's clickbait, nobody looks at it anymore. And okay, they have 1 million views, but after that, they have zero. And my image, my videos always go up like this. They always accumulate. I always remind myself that, you know, when, you know, when, uh, when, you know, when we look at, I don't know, you know, our analytics numbers or something, you know, and let's say, you know, let's say a, a video has like 200 views or something. And I always remind myself that, you know, back in the day when I used to play acoustic guitar gigs, 200 people in a club. Awesome. Were a lot of people. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's a lot of faces right there. But also as soon as numbers become interesting or important, you lose your passion. I don't care if only one people see the video. I have a lot of fun creating the videos. I love teaching. And if I see one few and one thumbs up, I'm happy because one person was happy. And the thing is what changed, like if you watch the older uh, live streams, I'm always in the studio. So we have a nice backdrop like you guys have. And I have lights behind me, which I can change in color. Uh, I'm dressed up with a chalet and like a comic uh, shirt underneath. So I have styling and lighting is perfect. And I just went like, you know what, during the pandemic and the studio is only like a, a two minute walk from here. It's literally on the other side of the road. But we decided, you know what, we're going to build this in the Batcave. So this is the Batcave where I'm now. This is where my guitars are, where my comics are behind me. And there's a whole lot of area over there that you don't see. And if people don't like the backdrop, listen to the content. Yeah. I make sure that the lighting is okay. I make sure that the audio is okay because audio and video is very important. But during the pandemic, we're not going to give a lot of attention about the backdrops because for the very simple reason, I also find it hard to be motivated to do a live stream if I have to build everything up, if I have to put a backdrop there. I go like, forget about it. Now I can just sit down, turn on two lights and I can go live. Yeah. So I make myself it as easy as possible. I can literally just wear shorts or no pants at all. You don't know, right? Because <laughs> you have to make it as easy as possible. So the only thing I have to do is go to my... My man cave, we call it the bed cave, where, where I'm already very, very happy. Sit down, literally turn on one camera, press one button, and I'm on live. And by making it so easy, you make that threshold a little bit lower. Like when I go to the studio, I have to go to the studio, take off the alarm, turn everything on, make sure that I'm dressed nicely, turn on the lighting on, and the lights are already there, but you still have to turn it on. Sit down, and I'm not at home. So I think during the pandemic, when I found out it was very hard to motivate yourself to do those live streams, we just said, you know what, we're just going to cut it down a lot. Just make it easy. Like I'm wearing a hoodie. I'm wearing a hat because uh, my hair looks terrible during COVID. Although now I went to the hairdresser, <laughs> but okay. <laughs> oh, you got hairdressers. Woohoo. No, no, she came over here. Oh. I actually got my hair cut in the garden because I didn't want her inside. So yeah, a lot of stuff has changed. I, I think, but mostly I, I think what changed is that... Um, you find out that how much you love your work. I think during the pandemic, I think a lot of people realize that they love their work or they hate their work. And for me, it's absolutely the, the confirmation that I absolutely love my work. So I'm, I'm dying to get out there and do it again. And over the years, of course, especially when there's a lot of pressure, like when you do four or five trade shows in a row, you sometimes start to wonder, like, is this really what I want to do? Because you're so tired. And at the fourth trade show, you, it's all a blur. 
So you do perform and everybody that sees me says, this was amazing. But still, when you get off that stage and you're tired, you just go like, it wasn't what I can really do. So you start to doubt, like, is this really the way that I want to go? And then during the pandemic, it's just, it's itching so much to start teaching again. So I think this is also a great place to discover like, hey, we can do this. And this is something that you see in the news now a lot, like a lot of this doom and gloom, like the economy will get an enormous hit. People are losing their jobs. Nobody has work anymore. When you really look at the numbers, you don't know how many people start new businesses during the pandemic. And I already said to Anna Week, if we didn't have any income, I would have income really, really fast because we have an IT backdrop, uh, right? We had an IT company for over 20 years. I would literally start it up again if I would have no income of the photography, of course. I would start it up again. I would hate it. But what I would do is I would create working spaces for people. So I would select one webcam, one kind of computer, and we build them all. And we would just go to people and we just install it from, uh, for example, Skype or Zoom from the car. So we give it to the customer, sit in the car, and just guide them through the whole process. And because the the uh, how do you call it the employees pay uh, sorry the um, the boss is paying, it's one hour one invoice right. So you can take your time. And I think when you look at the situations now. You can sit down and cry and go like, oh, my whole work is gone and my business is gone. And for a lot of people, like if you are in, um, um, how do you call it, hospitality, horeca, uh, cafes, that's really terrible. If you are in event business, that's really terrible. But I really think when you are in retail, man, there are so many options. Like we have one year, build a web shop. Very simple. You can have a web shop in one hour. And you hear so many people going like, Oh, but my whole business is gone. And then I look at their business and I'm an entrepreneur and my whole family has been entrepreneurs ever since the start. There's always, always a way to earn money. Always. Sometimes you do stuff that you don't like, but even in a pandemic, look at all the options for security at the moment. Look at all the options for uh, hand sanitizers. There will be a shift in work. Some people will work in a job that they don't want to do because they are not trained for it. But there are so many options. And in all honesty, nothing is broken, right? In a war, something is destroyed. So after the war, you have to rebuild the whole country. When you look at COVID, nothing is destroyed. It's only, it's only a pandemic. We have a lockdown and it will cost a shitload of money. And for the next four or five years, we were going to pay for it. But nothing is broken. So if we just accept that for four or five years, we have to take one step back. I can't buy a USA fender, but I have to buy a made in Mexico fender or a Squire. But if I can take that step back after five years, man, we have a way better society because nothing is broken. There's no uh, financial crisis in the form of like you had with the whole bubble with the banks. There's nothing like that. It's just like we've been on hold for a year. So I don't think you have to be doom and gloom. Like my work, trust me, um, same with the hairdressers. I will earn my money back in about two years because normally I teach twice a week fit four people in a group. So when I start up again, people will be so happy to go to the workshops again that I don't teach for four people, but I will probably have groups of five or six. Because normally they go like, yeah, we went to a workshop with Frank last week. Let's skip for this week. Let's go next month. And now they go like, I really want to go to that workshop. So the first ones will be jam-packed. So it will be okay afterwards. Don't worry. 
for not everybody, by the way, if you are in a business that is really hurting, don't take this personal. Of course, some people are really, really screwed over by the pandemic and it will never be okay. But most of the people that complain are in businesses that literally just, and that's entrepreneurship, right? If you can't go left, go right. If you can't go right and you can't go left, go straight. And if that's not possible, go under or go over or go somewhere else. But an entrepreneur is somebody that always sees options to earn extra money by doing online stuff, online training, doing online videos. And it, my income has gone from this to this. Absolutely. But we still have something there. And if I didn't change anything, I would probably go below zero and maybe even bankrupt. Yeah. And it's, I mean, it's an opportunity to reinvent yourself sometimes, you know, because oh, yeah. in a situation where you go like, okay, I've just realized I don't like my old job. Now, here is an opportunity to really start thinking about what I really want to do, you know, and then, and then building that up. Um, and of course, the world changes. I think generally, you know, humans are tend to be change adverse, meaning, you know, when change happens, you you kind of resist that sort of change. But change in, in this instance can actually be a really good thing because it will open up new avenues. Like for instance, you know, people's uh, people's work lives will change. Like after this pandemic, I think there's going to be a whole lot of people who will not go back to the office. They will, be, they will carry on working from home. So the demands, you know, so the demands are different. So what do people need um, when they work from home? Maybe, you know, if you're into carpentry, you can start building desks, you know, bespoke desks for people. Um, who need to work at home and something like that. So there's always an opportunity within that. And, you you know, you can, if you're that way inclined, of course, you can sort of carve out your own opportunities there. It's a bit like, I always compare to the Wild West. <laughs> it's not quite like the Wild West, but there's a little bit of that kind of free-spirited, um, you know, opportunity for entrepreneurship I, I said at the start of the pandemic, and it, it's harsh, you know, but I'm an entrepreneur also. I'm a really nice guy, but I'm also very harsh. And I think it's realistic. At the start of the pandemic, and we were only one month in, and a lot of companies were already complaining like, oh my God, I'm going to go bankrupt because I didn't have any income for a month. And again, I was brought up, I can't even remember a time where my parents weren't in their own businesses. And the one thing I always learned from Literally, the first thing I remember that my dad and my mom told me and also my grandparents was, if you choose this life of entrepreneurship, and it was very early on that I wanted to do that, you do have to remember one thing. One month, you can buy a Mercedes. The next month, you don't have dry bread. So always make sure that you have one year of income, one year of income on the bank, and that's when you start spending. So my whole philosophy over the years has been, we have to make sure that we have a buffer of one year. It's an insane amount of money, but we have to have a buffer of one year to cover our mortgage, to cover our food. Uh, healthcare, of course, in the Netherlands is free, but we still have to pay insurance, right? So we have to pay for insurance. And I want to make sure that that one year, I don't have to go on holiday that year, but we have to make sure that if we tighten our belts, one year we have to survive. That means that when the pandemic broke out, we were going like, oh my, this is terrible. And we are now literally eating that money. But because we also have income, because we have time, we didn't panic. So we could literally just go down and go, okay, invest a few thousand there, invest a few thousand there. So we have our home studio set up so we can do live streams from this. We were very, very fast with having two setups for video. And because we still had that money there, so we could make that switch very quickly. 
And if you are an entrepreneur and you already are bankrupt after one month of losing income, how do you explain to me that you can go on a holiday for four weeks? Because during a holiday, you also don't earn any money. And I think so in one part, the pandemic will be terrible. On the other hand, I think a lot of companies that were already taking a lot of the social um, uh, benefits are now bankrupt and there will be a lot of healthy companies starting up again. And that's only a good thing for the economy because those healthy companies don't need those subsidies. They don't need extra support from the government. They can give people work. And I think there will be a shift, but there will be a lot of more healthy companies and much more creative companies after this. Because let's be honest, in a lockdown, you have to be freaking creative to actually earn money. So if you are able to do that, the future will look very, very bright for those people. And the people that lose their jobs, don't worry, because those companies will grow and give you a, a, a new job. It will be different, but there, there's a lot of prospect for after this. You just have to survive it financially and, of course, hopefully also healthy, because this is a terrible period. There's, a, there's also a story that, um, that I'm sort of reminded of uh, that goes back to the late... I would say the late 90s. So when I moved to London in the late 90s, um, I lived in a, in a part of London called Leytonstone. There was a small music shop. Um, I believe it was called Holiday Music. It was a small store. It was very small. It was just, you know, I had, they sold guitars and guitar amps and strings and plaque drums and all, you know, all the, the normal kind of music store kind of stuff. Um, in the late 90s, they decided to set up an online system where people could order online, like like mail service, but done via a, a website. Yeah. At that point, that was really revolutionary. Yes. And they called it Strings Direct. And a couple of years later, they had to set up, they couldn't um, follow up with the demand, so they had to set up a little warehouse. Um, and then that warehouse grew. And grew and grew. And the online business took off like there was no tomorrow. And of course, then over the next, over the following 15, 10, 15 years, loads of high street music stores shut down because the economy has just switched or, or consumer behavior oh, has my. switched to, to go online. And one of the very few uh, companies that are thriving and have probably increased in size, I would guess, like ten, tenfold or more, is this particular company that started out like a tiny little, you know, as a tiny little uh, music store on a high street. They've, you know, they saw an opportunity very early on. They were early adopters of this newfangled online internet thing, you know, at the time. Um, and and you could, you could really, you can kind of track their progress and their their sort of growth, you know, over the last, over the last couple of decades in that respect. And I think, you know, there's, there's a similar opportunity here for a lot of people if, you know, if there's the will to look. It's finding the motivation and that's the main problem. Like sometimes I also feel like a beaten horse, literally like you don't have any energy to come out of your bed because why, right? It's every day is the same, right? And I think by setting the podcast like you guys do, for me, the challenge of shooting my action figures, uh, doing some tips on the iPad Pro and just keeping yourself busy. And during the summer, I was literally hitting a little bit of a, a bump in the form of with photography. I'm very limited to what I can do now. I can try new lighting setups, but I can do it only with a mannequin. And I'm in all due respect, it doesn't really work for me. So I bought an electric mountain bike. I always loved mountain biking and I had a normal mountain bike, but I'm a big guy. 
And I'm somebody that always goes like, hey, I'm a big guy, but I don't want to be a big guy. So I want to do the same thing that somebody else does that's 50 kilograms lighter, right? But going up a hill with a mountain bike and you are 50 kilos more heavier than somebody else or 25 kilos, eh, it's going to hurt. And so I said, you know what, let's buy an electric mountain bike. So at one point I was biking like five days a week. You find out that by doing something completely different from photography, you get that energy back. And I think keeping yourself, a lot of people say like during the lockdown, people gain weight. I lost 20 kilograms in one year. And I'm always a big guy. And it's never for me the eating part because with me, it's literally genetics. If you see pictures of me, it's only my belly. Everything else looks pretty normal. But during the lockdown, I have so much free time now that I literally went from exercising four times a week for half an hour to exercising five times a week for two and a half hours. And it's not like I'm doing cardio, but I'm I'm just addicted to that mountain bike. I love going to the forest. There's nothing in my head. I don't have any phone calls there because Enwick is getting all the phone calls at that point. So it's literally dead quiet in the woods. You have beautiful lighting. You have your phone with you so you can take pictures. And sometimes you just sit down and enjoy nature. This is something like without the pandemic, I wouldn't even think about it. Because if I sit down, I know that at home, my work is waiting. So I I think you really have to learn to everything that's negative, turn it into something positive. Like me, I, I lost 20 kilograms in a year. That's a lot of weight that I lost that normally... And then some people will say like, hey, you could do it also. Uh, so it is possible, right? No, it's not possible because I'm doing insane amount of exercising at the moment. But don't, and literally all the guys that are listening to this podcast, don't sit down and do doom and gloom. Start exercising, walk outside. You can do it in your garden. And trust me, when you exercise, you get a certain drive, a certain hormone. And as soon as you start and you take your shower, everything that you didn't want to do before, you do want to do after that shower because you are in a totally different mindset. Yeah, completely agree. I I started exercising more and more the last, uh, last few months in particular, almost every day. You know, I'm doing weights or, and in the last few weeks, I've taken up running as well. And I'm not an active, I never have been an active guy. But you're absolutely right. As soon as you've done that, you've, everything in your life feels just a little bit better. And you feel, you know what, I will do that now. I will go and do that. Whereas if you hadn't been to exercise, you would think, I'll do it tomorrow. I'll do it tomorrow. Thanks to my genetics, I have to exercise a lot. So I've been exercising for the last 15 years, especially rowing. And when I started, I lost, I believe, 35 kilograms in one year. And then it just stopped. And at one point you are at your peak, what you can do, right? And I didn't lose any money. Uh, I didn't lose any weight anymore. And it just slowly went down and sometimes up and down. And I literally, when the pandemic started, I just looked at that in a week. I said, this is my chance. Because I know if I can up the ante, I can keep my weight down. But I have to go down. I have to go through that plateau. And by buying the electric mountain bike, you know, you are forcing yourself because now it's an electric. So now I can do all that stuff. And I found out that the first climbs I did in turbo and I was standing on top of that hill and I was going like, I did it, but I did it in turbo, the same hill I now do in eco. And that's a huge difference. That's a times three. And I'm now standing on top of that hill going like, where's the next one? I can still can't do it without eco because then I just, 
It just doesn't work. Graffiti hates me. And when you go up high, graffiti always wins. <laughs> and I think that part of also that part of succeeding, being on top of that hill and looking down and going like, I did this and I couldn't do it before. That whole part that is so engaging, it's the same time when you take a picture and the first time you told about that you took your selfie with the Harku lighting and you were so happy that it worked. If you can get that feeling into every day in one thing, like being on top of that hill or being down, that was my main problem. On was no problem for me going down. That was terrifying. So at one point I just said, you know what? Normally I don't have time for this. Now I'm going to go to a hill. And I'm going to climb it up with the mountain bike. I'm going to go up, going to pee my pants because I'm terrified to go down. And I won't go down. I go to the half, go down, go to three quarters, go down. And at one point, I was just standing on top and going down. I said, okay, is there a higher hill in Amaloid? Yes, there is. Okay, let's take that one. Standing upside, almost wet my pants. Now I'm just going down. But that is so much time where you normally don't have the time for. And because there's now no pressure. So please, guys, use this as to improve yourself. Like you said before, after the pandemic, we should all come out healthier, less weight, and a lot more motivation. Because I think really after the pandemic, we are all so jumping up and down to start working again. There will be a boost in creativity. And if you don't pick it up then, and you have a market now, you will lose that market because there are so many people who picked up photography now. So a lot of photographers will be gone after the pandemic because they do something else. But realize that for a lot of photographers that are gone, that learned their trade in 15 years, a lot of people are now picking up the cameras a year ago. And in one year, you can learn a lot because there's no pressure. There's no, there's nothing to do. So after that time, there will be a lot of new photographers starting. And if you think that by just doing nothing a year and just sitting down and watching Netflix and then start up again, I think you will be very hard pushed to get that same level of creativity while where you do stuff like you guys start a podcast or like I like doing a lot of exercising and getting your mind and body into that shape of starting again. Dude, the moment I see a model again, I go crazy. I will create totally different lighting setups and I already have some ideas about sets and it will be 100% different is of course a broad statement, but it will be totally different when I teach or what I do. Because now it's time to think about it. It's, it's funny you mentioned sets because Nick and me have been discussing uh, different set options um, ourselves because, it's, you know, we're hoping that in the not too distant future, we'll be able to um, to be in the same place again and podcast you know, from from one place rather than being in our respective homes. Yeah, that's better, right? <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's, you know, because I mean, it is, it's like, you know, it's because you're having a conversation with another human. So it's, you know, it makes more sense. But um but we've been sort of discussing, uh, you know, changing things up, changing our set a little bit and, you know, just, you know, making it a little bit different uh, from when we get back. So, you know, watch this space. Um, if you're watching this on YouTube, of course, if you are listening to the audio version of this podcast, don't forget to head over to YouTube where you can not only hear our sultry voices, but also see our beautiful faces in full Technicolor. Um, so oh, just, yeah. that's the one. Head over to youtube.com forward slash camera shake. Um, don't forget to hit that subscribe button, ring the bell, all of the stuff that YouTubers keep telling you to do. Do it. Leave us a comment. That'd be awesome too. And on YouTube, you can see my cool Teletools pad. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> That's it. And by the way, on the iPad, uh, this is something that could also be cool for your listeners. I bought the first iPad Pro 12.9 inch when it was released. The very, very first one. I was so bummed out by Apple. 
I literally was so disappointed because it was just a big iPhone and it was just a big iPad and it didn't do anything. And last year I bought a new iPad Pro just to test out what it did now. And then when iOS 13 was released, I believe the first one with the uh, file system, that really changed a lot. And as a joke, I actually started doing video on LumaFusion and later on Rush from Adobe. I kid you not, I have a Dell i9. So with 32 gigs, i9 processor, it's it's a blazingly fast laptop. One, I edit faster on my iPad Pro and rendering also goes faster on my iPad Pro. For video, as long as you don't need multicam, because that's something that isn't really supported on the iPad, although you can do it yourself, but it's on the computer, multicam is better. But if you work with one camera or you combine different cameras, Dude, the mobile workflow for video is like almost perfect. Photography, I actually expected photography to be perfect and video to be a little bit less. To my surprise, it's the other way around because with photography, I miss a lot of the apps at the moment that do high resolution. So when you shoot 12 or 24 megapixels, there's no problem at all. You can use any app, including Snapseed or whatever. But I'm shooting a lot with 60 megapixels and you don't want to know how many apps are limited to 30 megapixels. So for me, the workflow doesn't make any sense. You go in with 60 megapixel file and you end up with a 30 megapixel end result. So for me now, most of the time, what I do actually when I found new apps is actually go in with a 60 megapixel file, open it up, save it. And if I see it just downsizes the image, I don't use the software. And then this amount of apps really goes down to that. And at the moment I'm using, I believe, Affinity Photo which is slowly being replaced by uh, Photoshop because I love Affinity Photo on the iPad, but it's, I don't want to say anything negative about Affinity because it's an awesome, awesome software package, but it just doesn't fit for me. Sometimes I can't get my layers right and my layer masks, it's sometimes a little bit buggy or it doesn't do what I expected. And although Photoshop is very, very limited, it just works. You know what I mean? Affinity Photo is very complicated and it looks awesome. But there, it's like some things are missing or it doesn't really work the way that you expect. And with Photoshop, it does. And I found out that most of the time I'm actually now working with a Pixelmator, Affinity Photo, Lightroom, and Photoshop. And actually those four combined give you a pretty good professional workflow. But when you look at video, Rush and LumaFusion, it's just insane. Like video, it's so much harder. And then when you look at the mobile workflow, it's so much easier. So that's a little bit of maybe if some of you guys are into video, take a look at iOS and the whole video editing. I think you will love me for it because the batteries is just insane. I, I believe we went back from Johannesburg last year and on the plane, I edited four vlogs because we didn't have any internet in Johannesburg. It was really uh, slow internet. So we didn't do any vlogs there, but I had of course a boatload of information and video. Now, when you do this on your laptop and you're two meters and you fly in economy comfort, the laptop one burns through your legs and two, after about one hour of video editing, the battery is gone. Yeah. Mm. So I took the iPad Pro, I charged it fully. And I believe when we landed in Amsterdam, it was like a 10 hour flight. I edited four vlogs. I didn't render them, but I edited four vlogs, watched movies and played games. And it's still a 25% left in my battery. Wow. <laughs> That's insane. Yeah. So it just gives you so much more. And although it's limiting, of course, your laptop has way more options. It's something I think in the future, especially now when they're talking about uh, 
uh, releasing the new iPad Pro soon with the M1 chip mm. or mm. similar to the M1 chip and then being able to run Logic Pro on your iPad for music. I think the whole world is going to change a lot towards more mobile devices. Yeah. And of course, Microsoft already did it very well with the Surface series. But then you still have the battery problem because the Surface dies about one hour in mm. if you only run on the tablet. And it's, one hour is nothing. I've I've gone kind of the other way because I used to I used to do all my editing on a MacBook Pro, um, like a laptop, and for years, literally. And then about I don't know maybe ten months ago or something, I bought an iMac with a much bigger screen, and I'm loving the big screen. Oh my god, I've gone like from literally what what now appears to be a tiny screen to a much bigger screen. So at the moment, I'm like because I've been thinking about like you know mobile workflows and iPads and everything. And, uh, but at the moment, I'm just loving having all that screen real estate at this point, you know, from a practicality point of view, yeah, I could totally see the whole, you know, the idea of, and, and I think, um, before I'd replace my MacBook pro, I'd probably replace it with an iPad pro personally. The thing is when I look at my laptops, I always want 15.6 inches. I don't want any smaller. And the thing was, that was what frustrated the heck out of me. I thought when I would go to the iPad Pro, because that's only 11 inch. So the first one I bought was 11 inch. And I was just going like, I don't know if I can video edit on it, but I don't, don't want to spend the money for the 12.9 because I'm 100% Android and Windows at the moment. And before I was 100% iOS and Mac, but because they took the card reader out of the laptops and they took out the Mac safe and the HDMI and only those ports and a crap keyboard, I was going like, I'm not going to spend $4,000 on a laptop that sucks. So I built a PC for the studio and I bought a PC laptop, a Dell, which is very close to an to a MacBook in design and everything. And it's just a great laptop. And Windows, let's be honest, if you don't do anything that is besides what you do. So on my laptop, there's only the software that I need. So I don't do any games. I don't download any beta software that I don't trust. And it runs flawlessly. I never have a problem with both my Mac and my Windows machine. And because I went to Windows, I also went to Android, which I love a lot after being used to Android for the better cameras. And I found out that by going to the iPad, and because everything is designed for the smaller screen, especially the 12.9, which is bigger, trust me, I'm working with video on a 32-inch BenQ monitor which is awesome. But when I go back to my laptop on a 15.6, I always struggle with video editing. So 15.6 for me for video editing is absolutely too small. When I do it on the iPad Pro, even the 11 inch works like a charm. I don't know why. I think it's because the whole touch, you don't have a lot of pull down menus and small text. It's all touch based. So if you want something, you just press hold and you will see the menu. So it's a totally different way of approaching. And then I think 11 and 12.9 inch is awesome. I would really wish Apple would go for 12 inch because 12.9 is maybe a little bit too big and 11 is a little bit too small. <laughs> so maybe go for 12, but give it a, give it a try. You, I think you're going to love it. Fantastic. Great advice. Great advice. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm going to give it a go. Cause my iPad's not powerful enough to do anything like that. I don't have a pro, but I use a MacBook, which I'm zooming on right, right now, mm. but I connect to an external screen, 32 inch screen to, if I really need to do something, but I've got so used to over lockdown doing video editing on this MacBook screen. Cause I can't be bothered to move from the sofa <laughs> <Yeah>. to, <laughs> to the studio. <laughs> 
Exercise, my friends. They can meet FaceTime virtually every day. And every day he's in the same position on the couch. <laughs> my spot. I've got it all set up how I want it now. <laughs> exactly. I'm just comfy in that little ball yeah, in the couch. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> At one point, you can't even stand up and you're sitting on the floor and you go, like, why am I so low? Yeah. <laughs> I think that's actually, that's exactly what's happening with my couch. This is something is happening. And by the way, did you know that nowadays you can actually hook up an external monitor to your iPad Pro and even have two different screens when you do LumaFusion? And I think also Rush, you actually have to preview on your big screen and you can edit on the small screen. Oh, that's I cool. I hope you already realized that. That's very cool. No, no, I didn't. You can connect, I know you can connect your iPad to your MacBook, Sidecar, I think they call it, yeah. and use that as an external screen. No, I've, I've never really got into that. HDMI monitor and you can just work on your iPad and have to preview on your big screen. Oh, that's uh, cool. Fantastic. And connect, uh, for example, we have these keyboards here. They're from uh, Logic Keys. Mm -hmm. A yep. bit of advertising. These are these, um, how do you call them? Uh, backlit keyboards. And of course, a mouse. And they all work on the iPad Pro. So I have my iPad Pro set up here. Uh, when I do music, I, I love to do it on Cubasis. Mm -hmm. I, I, on, the, on the computer, I use a Reaper. And you have a lot more options in Reaper. But the thing is, and you probably recognize this, I love my couch. So when I record my guitar parts and I have to go to the whole mixing part and adding effects and doing MIDI stuff, I love to do that on the iPad because you have the technical feel. So you can drum and whatever. So what I like to do is just record everything here. And then just take my iPad, put on he good headphones and just sit on the couch and do all the mixing and everything and do the effects and then connect it here again to the 1820. So the sound card with 18 in, 20 out and have the whole console set up and the big screen. It's just so easy to just grab up one iPad and connect it to a big screen, a keyboard and a mouse and take it on the couch and have absolutely nothing connected and do everything with your fingers. And I think for a lot of people, the whole thing is that the apps are limiting. And that's absolutely right. Sometimes you just have to figure stuff out that just goes a little bit different. Like there's no filter for skin. You have to figure out a way to do it yourself. And if you want to invest in that, you have a very powerful setup. And that's the same with music. Cubasis is a little bit more limiting than, of course, Reaper or Cubase. But it's on your iPad and it gives you so much more options. And when you need more, just export it as stamps and import it in a door in your laptop and you can do it on your laptop. And that's it. It's about knowing what you've got, what you, the limitations of that, that particular workflow and knowing when you do need to just go outside to do that, that one part that you need to do, that two parts. But your example of, on, of doing that on the, on, the, on the flight home is a perfect example that you're able to do all of it while you're there. And yes, okay, when you get back, you do need to do a little bit of tidying up, a bit finishing up and whatnot. So what? You've actually used all of that time, haven't had to recharge your battery, and otherwise that would have been wasted time, you know, or you would have just watched a, you know more movies or whatever it might be. So great advert for for looking at mobile and how that works for 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 you and your workflow. The only thing I can advise, and that's by um, trial and error, don't use Bluetooth headphones. <laughs> no. I tried to do video editing on Bluetooth headphones the first time and I listened it back at home, luckily before I uploaded, I was going like, I could have sworn I edited this really on the beat and it was a little bit off the beat, you know, and it was like frustrating as heck. It was like, doof. no, it was, doof. I was going, 
what the heck's going on? And then I just realized like, hey, Bluetooth, there's like a 25 milliseconds delay. And I actually found it out when I started playing guitar with Bluetooth headphones. I was going like, this is weird. So I had an old headphone with a, a wire and I put it in. It was like, oh yeah, this is it. So never Bluetooth headphones anymore. So when you want to do video on your iPad Pro, make sure that you use wired headphones. Pro tip right there. Love it. <laughs> Frank, thank you so much for being on the show with us today. It was an absolute education as always. Yeah, it was really fun uh, chatting with you guys. And it really went into a chat session. And I think that's the cool part. But hey, awesome. And with that, we have come to the end of this week's episode. Uh, thank you very much for tuning in and listening. Again, if you are listening to the audio version of this of this podcast, uh, be advised that there's the full video version over on YouTube, youtube.com forward slash camera shake. Um, likewise, it'd be awesome if you would join our community, head over to camerashakepodcast.com, click the join our community button, and you'll always be in the loop and you'll know whenever exciting things happen and whatever there's new stuff coming up. Mm -hmm.